Okay, go ahead. You guys ready? Yep. Hey, everybody. It's Contrarious Live, Out of the Darkness, and we're going to do a show here on Hierarchy. And Chris has some uh, prepared material that he's going to go over. And uh, so you can just kind of kick back and listen to all that and ponder all this. And uh, it's going to be pretty deep, I think. So go ahead, Chris, and uh, start reading that there. All right, well, this is in direct response to a listener of our show. Uh, He sent me a message um, over Facebook, and he wanted me to do this show. But anyway, I'll just read his message, and then I'll get to answering it. He said, uh, so he messaged me, he said, it's stuff you have said many times, but I've had a difficult time putting the map together in my brain. I want to start at the very top, identify that person, then come down level by level and name names and make connections to other entities. I want to visually be able to reference where these characters like Azra or Michael or whoever appear in relationship to those above and below them. For instance, there are those 70, then four above them, or something like that. Who the heck are these gods? I want to see this hierarchy with names on them, the ones that are named anyway. And outside of that, also to connect the maps of higher and lower forms of entities in a systematic fashion. That's what is lacking. I have struggled in futility to make sense of this thing. So that was his message. So he wants, you know, a systematic, detailed you know, exposition of the hierarchy going from the top, starting at the top, and then working our way down. So I prepared this outline here. I just, I'm starting at the very top. I got the higher father, um, Yahweh, just call him. I said, uh, he dwells in the uncreated realm of supernal light. And this is kind of stuff we've uh, mentioned on our previous theology calls, too, so it's not totally new. But uh, he dwells in the uncreated realm of supernal light, which is above heaven, and has no form outside of the creation, but is a person, not an abstract monad like in Platonism, who transcends all categories of language, you know, subject, predicate, verb, adverb, etc. I don't, I don't, I don't think the higher father is. Uh, I, I wouldn't affirm negative theology okay. with him. I think. You know, I don't think he's just an abstraction, and he transcends all reason to where you can't know him at all. No, okay, I, I would do it, but only in a, in a qualified degree. Yeah. No, 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 yeah, I would affirm some of negative theology, like you, but not, not it in totality, mm-hmm. to where he's just some abstraction, you know what I mean? I think he, he's a person, he has a nature, uh, it's an emotional nature, you know, I think he can have emotions... And he can reveal things to where you can know him, you know. So, I said he contains both masculine and feminine aspects. Although the masculine is dominant, active, and anterior, whereas the female passive and dormant and posterior in terms of how they manifest in the emanations, his masculine aspect precedes. You even see that in, like, Gnosticism and the Gnostic hierarchy. They had the the male aspect of the highest uh, being was uh, preceded everything else. Um, he and his realm can be seen in the Kabbalah with the Ein Sof and the Ein Sof Or, or the realm of limitless light. It's literally what Ein Sof Or means. 
which precedes the emanations or the ten sephirot and agnosticism, such as Valentinianism, with the first father, Bithos, also known as depth or profundity, and his feminine aspect, uh, Sigi or Anoia, a.k.a. silence or idea, who dwell in the Pleroma above the realm of the Aeons, which is separated by a boundary, also called Horos. Um, he is a spirit. As per John 4.24, quote, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, end quote. He dwells in unapproachable light and has never been seen, nor is anyone able to see. Quote, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, notice it doesn't say in heaven, whom no one has ever seen or can see, end quote, 1 Timothy 6.13-16. So we can also deduce from that passage that he alone is autotheos, you know, he's the uncaused cause upon which everything else depends. Um, that's why it says only he alone uh, possesses immortality. So everything else that has immortality is derived of him. Um, he precedes everything else. Uh, John 6.46, quote, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father, end quote. 1 Timothy 3.17, quote, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. End quote. Uh, as I said, this Father is formless, but a spirit, and thus is truly omnipresent and removed, yet also ever-present, because his spirit permeates all of the emanations or creation as it emerged out of him, out of his being. Quote, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth. That's just referring to the Adamites. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring, end quote. Acts 17, 24 through 28. As we can see also from 1 John uh, one fifteen, he is light, quote, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, end quote. He is also called, quote, the father of lights in James 1.17, quote, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, end quote. Now, the two aforementioned passages are especially important because from them we can deduce that light is uncreated and thus help to support emanationism, our belief in emanation. 
the phrase, quote, father of lights, indicates that light was begotten or fathered and not created ex nihilo or out of nothing. This can also be deduced from Genesis 1-3, which says, quote, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, indicating how God called to the light to bring it forth, not a creation ex nihilo, or out of nothing. And that was its first emergence from the upper realm of uncreated light, which preceded that of the sun and moon and heavenly luminaries into the Adamic creation. Thus also we see in 1 Corinthians 15:39 through 41 that everything is composed of light in differing degrees. Quote, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for man, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, end quote. I'll tell you that everything is light, just in different degrees. We also see in Ephesians 5.13 that whatever is manifest is light, quote, but all matters being convicted are manifested by the light, for whatever is manifested is light, end quote. Thus, we can deduce that everything is light in different gradations and emanated or emerged out of the higher Father's spirit. So, I make a note here. I said, I affirm some commonalities with the Valentinian tradition and that I think that darkness emerged out of the light that emanated from God and as it proceeded from him down the way, or in terms of hierarchy and density, it became distant to him and took on a, quote, otherly or deficient element finally being entangled in matter, which is composed of varying degrees of light and darkness, not only to benefit us mortal creatures who can't know one without the other, but also to highlight the cosmic drama, essentially a morality play which God scripted beforehand and that would play out in this dense creation cycle, you know, of, of dualism, which, of opposites. In the Valentinian view, matter was considered, quote, the shadow of the Pleroma, or the, or the uncreated realm of supernal light. Thus, matter is crystallized light that has been stratified by sound, as per, quote, the Word, as creator, in John 1, 1 through 3, and that of the Elohim, or, quote, morning stars, who sang for joy and also participated in the creation in Job 38, 7. Now, why were they singing? Because the singing was actually forming the matter. Thus, when we deduce from this, it is consistent and conforms with reality in how everything is frequency and matter is formed by vibration or sound. Uh, you also see this in J.R.R. Tolkien's work, which is actually the, the description of my call. I have an excerpt from this work, but it's called The Silmarillion. And in that, he has a creation story of uh, his high high god, the high father, who he calls Iluvatar, and how he uh, basically begot the what are called the Ainur, or like the gods. They were the offspring of his thought, and they participated in the creation by singing. Basically exactly how it's described in Job 38 with the morning stars, or the Elohim. They were singing during the creation process. 
So that was all I had on the uh, hire, Father. Do you want to make any comments, Dave? Um, we got some revelation today. I, I, I asked if the, uh, yeah, I call him the Upper Father, uh, yep. if he was in the Bible. Uh-huh. And he's, he said yes. And uh, uh-huh. then I asked if that one, if it was one of the scriptures that you read over the phone that one day with me and uh-huh. Jeff there. He said yes. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, I'm going to read that one here. And then uh, the one that I figured was probably the most obvious when it says he dwells in unapproachable light. Yep. It says yep. that referring to him, and he said yes. But the first time he ran all up through me, I, 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 you know, I wasn't certain by any of that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I didn't affirm anything, you know. <clears throat> so yep. yeah, but he confirmed that, yeah. So <clears throat> okay. Um, let's see here. That was really good. What you said there about, uh, of course, it's you know in scripture about. Um, each star differing, you know, in its glory. Yeah. It just shows you that everything is, I've said over and over that no two things are equal. No. That may be the best proof text in Scripture. Yep. And yet Christians, they think towards, along the lines of equality over and over again. And that, I believe it's theological propaganda. Mm-hmm. Also, um, we're actually talking about three different realms here. The um, what I often call the eternal realm. Um, mm-hmm. You can give it different names, like the empyrean. I'm not sure if that's the correct term. That, that's you see that in medieval literature, like in Dante stuff like that. The empyrean, yeah, yeah, or the uh, pleroma. Sometimes it looks like the pleroma is something lower, or it has to do with the Elohim or the archons. Sometimes it does. I look think like I the, think the eternal realm. Yeah, I think the Pleroma is pretty good. I mean, because the uh, the Aeons is those are the heavens, you know, uh-huh. and like the Valentinian scheme, mm-hmm. and those but are it, they may have different views of it in, in different types of Gnosticism. So yeah, yeah, that's something to look into. But I, I like to create um, some terms. We would borrow these terms, you know, something besides eternal realm. And yep. uh, just make our own terms because the institutions are not going to do it for us, so we have to do it themselves. I mean, they've had plenty of time. You know, they're just ignoring this um, eternal realm. They're, they won't even condemn emanationism. They don't, they, they've never exegeted um, Revelation 4.11 or explain why both the Lamb and the Father are on the throne in Revelation 22. They just, it's not happening. So... No. Somebody has to do it. The institutions, they, they won't take any theological risk. So no. um, it's like there's three different realms here. There's this um, superior realm that's eternal. That's the dwelling place of God and eternal spirits. And they cover that up to like a couple four. Because we, we, we dwell there normally. And then um, there's, a, there's a lower father. But there's actually a father in each realm. And that is another crazy realm below that. Yeah. Where you have this... Um, that's our Heavenly Father there in, in Revelation chapter 4. And yep. then you have a father on earth, in the earthly realm, and that's Adam. Adam, yeah. And then also, I believe that this is, re- uh, we got a confirmation on this, that this is reflected in, in the nature of man. He has a trichotomous being. nature. Yeah. So the, the spirit would reflect God and that superior realm, and then the soul would, would reflect heaven. 
The psychical, yeah. Uh-huh. And then uh, the body would uh, refer to the dense reality that we live in. Yep. They have the same and, three divisions in, like, Valentinianism, too. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, the spirit is eternal. Yeah. It's like that realm, see? And uh, heaven, uh, which the soul would reflect, is, uh, is, is not immortal. No. Yeah. But it has less density, obviously, than the body. Yep. And I think that this God that is spoken there in Acts 17 that says that we we live and move within his being, mm-hmm. that is probably the upper father. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that there's an omnipresent God and then there's a, a God outside of him. I think right. the omnipresence probably has to do with the upper father. Yep, that's why, that's why I mentioned that, yeah. So the creation exists within the upper father, and there's nothing exists outside of that. Yep. So, anyway, yeah. Now, I'm not certain if you can know him. <laughs> I have to actually ask about that. You know, the upper father? Yeah, I think uh, he can. At least at this time. See, perhaps... Well, the angels have said some things that um, that he's kind of withdrawn. In fact, Chuck, I'm not even sure if he was... Were they talking about the, the Father in Heaven or the Upper Father? I'm not even sure. Well, I'll make a qualification. I think you can know him through his son. Okay. Say that. Uh-huh. So I think that this, um, you know, the two lower fathers are, are obviously also sons, but the, 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 the Father in Heaven, he, I, I believe that he's a son in, in, in a qualified sense. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. Because he emerged out of the Father or is an extension of him in emanation, something like that. So, Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was going to okay. say they, uh, earlier, they have the same three divisions in Valentinian Gnosticism. They have the, uh, the pneumatic, which refers to the spirit, then the psychical, which is like the soul, uh-huh. and then the, uh, the hylic, which refers to the dense matter. They have the same three divisions there. You know, and the psychical is just more subtle. It's like a more subtle body, like a soul, you know. Well, you've heard me say a number of times that um, they extracted a lot of these important truths out of the apostolic faith, the Hebrew faith. And then oh, yeah. they, uh, they reappeared in these other new religions. Uh, Talmudic Judaism was a new religion, um, Constantinian Christianity, that was new religion. Not a first century yep. religion. This is after the first century. Yep. yep. People need to understand that. Even if you think that Christianity was a uh, a new religion in the first century, we're talking about a different religion, just like uh, there was a new Judaism that appeared. And anyway, yep. it didn't, they didn't put these truths in the, the new Christianity, or whatever you want to call it. Um, they took them out of it, and then they put them in uh, Manichaeanism, Gnosticism, yep. um, Islam, and yep. Judaism. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you see bits and pieces of the truth, and then Christians are programmed to reject these things to get by association. So you can actually yep. see that there with what you're saying there. Well, they have that, but we have nothing. Yep. Actually nothing. So mm-hmm. it kind of verifies that theory of mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I said this brings us to the next in the hierarchy, the Word. I mentioned the Word before as the Creator. Or the Lower Father, 
Yahweh. You can call him Yahweh as well. He shares his father's name. Or the celestial Adam. I uh, said, so as can be deduced in the former passages, the higher father is a spirit, invisible, omnipresent, and exists in a realm of unapproachable light and has never been seen. Some may argue that this refers to the being on the throne who normally dwells in and radiates such light that he can't be seen. But notice that in 1 Timothy 6.16, it makes no qualification and says he cannot be seen, period. Thus I contend that this, along with other passages, disqualifies the being on the throne from being a higher father who is formless outside of creation. Because the being on the throne was seen by Moses, Abraham, the elders of Israel, Aaron, Nadab, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, Micaiah, etc. He's been seen a whole bunch of times. Uh, the distinction between the two can be seen in Hebrews 1, 8 through 12. Quote, but to the Son, he, a.k.a. the Father, says, Your throne, O Elohim, is forever and ever a scepter of straightness, is the scepter of your reign. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Because of this, Elohim, your Elohim, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Master, did found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish, but you remain, and they shall all grow. Old like a garment, and like a mantle you shall fold them up and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall not fail. End quote. Okay, so notice here in this passage, uh, there's a being addressing the being on the throne, who's it also describes as being the creator. Yet there's a being above him that anointed him. So the being on the throne has a God above him. This is the God behind God principle. This is the higher father here talking to the uh, the lower father, you know, the one on the throne. What part of scripture is that again? That is uh, Hebrews 1, 8 through 12. Okay. That's the one that, that's the passage that you were referring to earlier that you guys said you got confirmation on. Okay. Uh-huh. So... This can also be seen in Psalm 45, 6 through 7, quote, Your throne, O Elohim, is forever and ever. The scepter of your reign is a scepter of straightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wrongness. Therefore, Elohim, your Elohim, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. End quote. So the Elohim on the throne has an Elohim above him that anointed him. See that? Mm-hmm. Here we can clearly see and deduce that the being on the throne in heaven with a heavenly body has a God above him, or the God behind God. The being on the throne, the lower Yahweh, the celestial Adam, or the Ancient of Days, is fully God and could be considered, quote, the Father as we know him, but received this status and all his attributes from the higher Father behind him. Would you agree with that? I'm still trying to figure out who's talking to who because uh, Psalm, excuse me, Hebrews 1 is quoted in Psalm uh, 45. Yeah. yeah. 
And uh, I'm going to go with what you said, but because I don't know the timing of the resurrection here. That's the problem. I think we need revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, see, on the surface of things, you would think that the queen and the gold of, of Ophir, where it'll say princess, uh-huh. is an earthly woman, that you're assuming that the resurrection hasn't occurred yet. And if that occurs in Israel, I believe that the resurrection has already occurred, and that would mean that the Heavenly Father has been blended together uh, with, the, with the earthly man, and then there wouldn't be a problem between Psalm 40, 45 and Hebrews 1. So. Well, I was going to say, too, I think it qualifies in Hebrews uh, 1, because the Father is speaking to the one on the throne. He goes on to say... And you, Master, did found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a good. It seems to me like he's talking to the heavenly Adam, you know, on the on the throne who was the creator. You know. Yeah, yeah. See, in the old days, um, you run into these problems if you don't have an upper and now we're talking about an upper and lower sun. Yeah. Because um, if you don't have that, then you have Adam creating everything. And yep. um, Adam is a created being. I don't believe that. I believe that he was contained within uh, the heavenly Father. Yep. And then he emanated out of him as Adam. But Adam didn't create anything. He was a, a creature himself. So. Yep. Uh-huh. That's why it's important to have an upper father, because yeah. um, you do have a heavenly Adam. Yep. And. Uh, so I think the Heavenly Adam is the Heavenly Father. Yeah. Uh-huh. But that can create confusion, too, once you start theorizing about... Um, and he was the, the creator. Yeah, the garden being on top of this mountain that actually penetrates the firmament. Mm-hmm. But that still wouldn't prove that there's not two atoms necessarily. So anyway, go ahead. Okay. I said, uh, this can also be seen in Revelation 4.11, quote, You are worthy, O Yahweh talking about the being on the throne, to receive esteem and respect and power. For you have created all, and because of your desire they are and were created, end quote. So you see he can receive power. See that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The heavenly Adam, or the lower father of the Ancient of Days, was the first emanation or heavenly body to emerge out of the higher father. This can be deduced from Micah 5.2, quote, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are little among the clans of Judah, out of you shall come forth to me, the one to become ruler in Israel. And his comings forth, or his origins, are of old, from everlasting. End quote. This is prophesying Yeshua, or Jesus, who hasn't been born yet. So it's referring to his heavenly self, the Ancient of Days. You know, and it says his origins are of old from everlasting. I think uh, everlasting is in this translation, but that's okay. <clears throat> well, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, uh, it, qualifies it, it qualifies it before, though. It says are of old, you know. I'm looking at the right. English standard, and it says uh, coming forth from old, from ancient days. See? Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. What, what translation are you using, by the way? I, I didn't mark it for that one. Oh, okay. you just read it. Yeah, okay. That's okay. Yeah. I think it was my ISR, my Institute for Scripture Research, because I had the Hebrew name. Okay. So. 
Uh, so uh, he is the image of the invisible higher father, uh, Colossians 1.15, and his form in the manifest creation, i.e. heaven. He is his representative in creation or avatar and is the mediator between all of creation and the higher father. He's the instrument through which the higher father used to create everything. He is the word and logos, John 1.1, the creator, the firstborn of all creation, the first and the last, Revelation 1, and the father and head of the gods who sits above and beyond the rest of the sons sons of or divine counsel. Another passage you can see this is John 3.13, quote, that no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that hath come down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And uh, Christ yeah. on earth uh, spoke this. So uh, he was actually referring to the Son of Man himself being also in heaven in the present tense at the same time that he was on earth. Yeah, there's a there's there's a variant readings there, so Yeah, I normally, I normally don't quote that one. I quote the other one. Yeah. I mean it's still supplementary uh-huh. evidence, you know. So uh also in Daniel seven thirteen it says, quote I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven uh, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, end quote. The version of the Septuagint is different in the last two clauses of this verse. It says, quote, As the Ancient of Days he came, and those standing around were present to him, end quote. Thus conflating the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, and confirming the Ancient of Days, as Christ's heavenly self, as also seen in Revelation 4 and Revelation 7 and Revelation 1 and Philippians 2, 5 through 7, which says, quote, For let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah, Yeshua, or Jesus, who, being in the form of Elohim, did not regard equality with Elohim a matter to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and came to be in the likeness of men. End quote. So, before uh, the earthly Christ uh, came on earth, he was, uh, you know, his heavenly self, the being on the throne. Right? The Ancient of Days figure. Yeah, he was in the bosom of the Father. That's the theory. Yeah. And then he, he re-emerged back with him after he ascended, which you see in Revelation. Yeah, we got Revelation on that, and uh, you remember that, Chuck? You got Revelation uh, like one uh, seven, Revelation seven. It's in there. Mm-hmm. Chuck, are you there? Oh yeah, I walked away from that. I didn't ask what I didn't hear what you were asking. Um, yeah, Chris, I held to the view that uh, they were uh, merged together. And, uh, Chuck, I think we were told uh, differently. I think we were told that it was a vision that communicated that um, the land... You're talking about about Revelation 1. Yeah, you told me about that. 
that the yeah. lamb was, um, you know, the, is identified with the Ancient of Days, but, it, but they actually yeah. weren't merged. Now, see, you don't really have enough information to prove that either way. But Not yet. Were being told that? I think, they were, I think they were later, though, in Revelation. Well, I, I've always held to that view, but even if they were, um, you, you remember this, Chuck? If you don't remember. Yeah, I think, I, I think you're right. I think you're right, yes. Yeah. Um, I used to kind of use it as kind of as a proof text, you see. And now I realize you can't really do that because I didn't think about the possibility that the vision was simply communicating something uh, it had to do with identification that had not actually occurred, the merging. And then you're going, well, you got a point there. I mean, how do we know? See, so, yeah, uncertainty there. So, anyway. You don't think it's clear, though, later, like in Revelation 7, when there's only one throne and it says the Lamb was in the midst of the throne? I mean, I don't know what, what uh, else you're going to do with that's that. That's an interesting point. No, I've always distinguished <laughs> between them. You're saying that they were merged there, huh, because he was in the midst of the throne? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I've never thought about that. I always thought of separation there, even though I actually thought that they were merged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I had difficulty understanding that they would be separated, uh, if he came out of the Father, wouldn't it be natural for him to go back into him? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, no, I think that that's true because he ruled from heaven. I don't think he... Now, hold it now. Uh, we'll have to get revelation on that. I, I actually don't know because I think when it says that being at the right hand of the Father, he ruled at the right hand of the Father, so that may indicate separation. Uh, no, 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 no. That's not what it says in Revelation. Okay. No. It says the Lamb was in the midst of the throne and John only saw one throne. Revelation 7. Uh-huh. So, I think they were, I think they were remerged. You're saying that's uh, a superior eschatological passage. It's the updated one. Uh, the most recent update. That's the yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I can see uh-huh. that, yeah. Okay, well, uh, I think I said, that um, the passages that talk about that are talking about the intervening period from the resurrection, from the resurrection to that passage. They're talking about the in-between period. Yeah, I agree. Where he had uh-huh. ascended into heaven, but uh, John had not gone up to heaven yet. So exactly. That's yep. a good point there, yeah. Yeah, yep. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I want to check on that if I remember him. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I said he's also known as the name... Uh, he's also known as a uh, Metatron in a uh, second and third Enoch. He's actually called the Lesser Yahweh in that, yet he's the highest being in that on the throne on a throne in heaven. So I mean, he's the highest being on a throne in heaven in that text, and he's called the Lesser Yahweh. Well, tells you right there, there's a Yahweh above him. Uh, I also think he's known as Yahuel or Yael in the Apocalypse of Abraham. Uh, and I think his star, his celestial object, is the sun. Mm-hmm. That's all I had on him. Would you agree with that? Or Yeah. Okay. So next, uh, we're going to number, this is number 72. I said uh, Lady Wisdom or Sophia. Uh, she's known as Sophia in the Bible, not 
not the Sophia Gnosticism. Yeah. Oh, hold on. No, I got a note I want to read here first. So I said, on the lower selves, uh, I said, we believe that each person or a part of them emanated out of or emerged or divided from their heavenly selves in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Thus, Adam emerged or emanated out of the lower Yahweh or the heavenly Adam, as did Christ. We can also deduce this from Luke 20:36, which says, quote, Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection, end quote, to which I affirm another belief in Valentinianism, where upon the resurrection we remerge with our heavenly selves, which we see of Christ in Revelation 7, where he remerged with his heavenly counterpart after his ascension, which Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says he emerged out of. Thus, they are composite entities in a temporal state of division. Also, we can deduce from Sirach, the wisdom of Sirach, 42, 24 through 25, quote, All things are in pairs, each the opposite of the other, but nothing the Lord made is incomplete. Everything completes the goodness of something else. Could anyone ever see enough of this splendor, end quote? that everything in creation from this passage has an opposing counterpart as well. Thus, I think every Elohim emanated as a male-female pair, like the Sizid, I can never say this word, Sizidges in Valentinianism. Hey, Chris. Yeah? I got a quick conspiracy theory for you. I think that they made that word deliberately difficult. You know what? I was literally just thinking that to myself right before you said that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They don't want uh-huh. They're trying to cover it up. They don't want you to communicate it. Go ahead. Yep. They made it deliberately odd sounding yep. and spelled yep. it that way, too. I also think the Elohim have an opposing dark counterpart as well, although I think there are exceptions to this, such as with the Heavenly Adam and Lady Wisdom and Nimbus and his consort. Just like I think the Heavenly Adam and his consort, Lady Wisdom, are sovereign exceptions to devolution and remain pristine. Would you agree with that? Because, uh, you got a problem if you think that Nimbus and his consort have a counterpart on the side of light. My mind is wandering in different directions, thinking about the things that you said previously, and so I don't... We'd have to to posit some different being there, you know? You want to run that by me again, or just go forward? Huh? It went past me. Do you want to run that by me again? Oh, oh! I said, uh, I said, I also think the Elohim have an opposing dark counterpart as well, although I think there are exceptions to this, such as with the Heavenly Adam and Lady Wisdom and Nimbus and his consort. Right? Well, the, Heavenly, the Heavenly Adam and Lady Wisdom, they don't have dark counterparts, do they? Unless you want to say that Nimbus and his consort are their dark counterparts. Uh, well, they have that role, but, uh, but right. uh, he, he he is actually in both hierarchies in different historical periods. That's what makes things complex. Nimbus? Nimbus yeah, Adonis. yeah, uh-huh. that's true. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a name for her. She's called Ra- Rahab. Rahab, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I already wrote that here in the outline. I was going to get to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Okay. So I'm going to continue. So back to the number 72, Lady Wisdom or Sophia. 
again, she's called Sophia in the Bible, not the Sophia Gnosticism. Um, she is the consort of the lower Yahweh, or the Ancient of Days, the Heavenly Adam. As can be deduced from Proverbs 8, 22 through 31, quote, Yahweh possessed me the beginning of his way, as the first of his works of old, the first. I was set up ages ago, at the first, before the earth ever was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. This is emanationist language. He was begotten. Yeah. First thing to emanate out of the heavenly Adam. When there were no springs, heavy with water. Before mountains were sunk, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth and the fields or the first dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there, when he decreed a vault on the face of the deep, when he set the clouds above, when he made the fountains of the deep strong, when he gave to the sea its limit, so that the waters could not transgress his command, when he decreed the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him a master workman, and I was his delight day by day, rejoicing before him all the time, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men, end quote. So I said, uh, now from this passage you will notice that the Hebrew word for, quote, men there is Adam. You will also notice that it does not make sense to have two plurals together and the con, like, sons of mankind, as it says in other passages, other uh, uh, translations, I mean. And the context is the process of creation, which hasn't been finished yet. So how can this be referring to earthly sons of Adam, when that would require a significant passage of time to elapse after the creation was already finished? So that's, you know, the sons of Adam in this passage are the they're the Elohim you know they're the sons of God mentioned in Job 38 uh, and they're the God that they're the sons of is the heavenly Adam right the creator in this well the creator in both Job 38 and this passage yeah the heavenly Adam celestial Adam yep yep Thus, if you compare with the parallel creation account in Job 38, these are the sons of the heavenly Adam, or lower Yahweh, the creator, a.k.a. the Elohim, which you see in John 1, 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 16, and Hebrews uh, 1, 2, uh, a.k.a. they're the Elohim, or the, quote, morning stars, or sons of God. Thus, as we can see, Lady Wisdom was the first emanation out of the Heavenly Adam as his consort, and thus would be the Heavenly Eve. Yep. Yep. As we can see from the work of Margaret Barker and others, there is evidence that the two cherubim in the temple originally represented a male-female pair, which Margaret Barker talks about in in her work, The Great Angel, Mm -hmm. uh, the Heavenly Adam and Lady Wisdom. Uh, with yeah, a higher fa- with the higher father above them, you know, above the mercy seat in between. I've got that book. Everybody should have it. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good, really good work. Uh, also seen in the Kabbalistic tree with uh, you know the two columns, Bina and Hakma, and with mm-hmm. the basically the supreme being in between above them. Uh, so, 
we can also deduce from First Enoch 42, 1 through 3, that wisdom dwells in the council as the highest member therein, thus associated with the number 72, quote, Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Then a dwelling place was assigned her in the heavens. Wisdom went forth to make our dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Wisdom returned to her place and took her seat among the angels. End quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wisdom. The number 71 oh. in the divine council. Female. You said she's the number 71? Within that, within the context of that council, yeah. Who's who's seventy two then? Uh the heavenly uh, Adam. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yep. Wisdom is the patron deity of Israel or Eden. Uh, well, along with her consort, the heavenly Adam. Uh, her star is, or celestial object is, the moon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which explains why it's referred to as her. Her, yeah. 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 So uh, next in hierarchy is Nimbus. Uh, I also call him Samael if you want to use a more traditional name that's found in, you know, tradition. Um, And his consort. I said, uh, as we have affirmed in previous calls, we believe in a celestial or heavenly Satan who is the primary Satan in the Bible and whose residence was heaven until he was cast out in the first century. He is in his own category and like the heavenly Adam with the spirits of light or the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, he is the head of the spirits of darkness or the spirit of the Antichrist. He was the being who spoke through the serpent who was a beast of the field and used him as his instrument of agency in order to seduce and deceive Eve. Hence his conflation with the serpent in Revelation 12.9, but also impossibility of them being the same numeric entity as the serpent was a beast of the field and was cast out of Eden in Genesis 3.14, quote, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, end quote. So you obviously see how this is a nominal uh, equivocation with the serpent in the garden. He can't actually be the serpent in the garden because the serpent in the garden was cast out of Eden in the Genesis account. He can't possibly be the same American entity because this is talking about a being who wasn't even thrown out of heaven until the first century, right? Yeah, so you're disagreeing with Michael Heiser. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a, it's a nominal complaint. He spoke through the serpent, which is just mm-hmm. exactly what the Jewish legend and truth can say, you know. And uh, Samuel, church, church believers believe too, so sometimes they're right. Yeah, uh-huh. uh You know, I overthink things, and uh, I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. people are overthinking the synagogue of Satan. I just think, you know, today Satan has a church. And back then, he had a synagogue, and uh, it just has to do with the remnant and the reprobate, and it's nothing profound. It doesn't have to do with all these radical racial theories, in my opinion, you know. So. Yeah, I would, I would agree, but I think there's overlap, though. There is a no. little bit of overlap. There's something else there, but I think that's the main truth that's being communicated. It's just reprobate. Sure. Church. Sure. Uh-huh. 
He has a people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh-huh. they were in Israel. And the, you know what they are? The anti-remnant. There you go. The people that are not the remnant. <laughs> yep, yep. It's a synagogue of Satan. Hold on. i got to plug in my phone here. You know, once you look outside the um, – uh, Paul talks about an inner Israel. And when he talked about an inner Israel, he wasn't talking about an institutional Israel. He was talking right. about a non-institutional uh, Israel when he talked about a spiritual Israel. So same thing today. Uh, yep. Satan, Satan has a people yep. that profess yep. belief in God, but actually um, he rules them. And uh, they're going to him when they die. They're doomed. Yep. And uh-huh. those are his people. Uh, they're the reprobate. Um, yep. You know, in Second Corinthians, I think, 13, it says, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith unless you be reprobates. Um, the Scripture teaches that most people don't make it. So those are his people, and um, that's his body <laughs> uh, of believers, yeah. or whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah. Corp- corporate body, huh? It can be institutional, but it's also, I'm, I'm talking about a spiritual people here. They're, they're, they're dark. And, of course, they all think they're, they're going to make it, you know. Yep. He's deceived, deceived them. Mm-hmm. They have false assurance from the devil. Right? Yep. And they're very very confident people. They all believe they're going to make it. So they're in for a big surprise. Mm-hmm. According to what Jesus said, you know, it's going to be the minority, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty obvious mm-hmm. he taught that. That's pretty obvious. You know, It's not the majority. Mm-hmm. And yet they still believe, you know, they're confident. Oh, yeah, I'm going to make it. Anyway. Yep. Okay, so I said, uh, as we have discussed in our previous theology shows, we contend that Nimbus, or Samael, was created as an originally pristine being who gradually fell out of favor and had a moral lapse over time to finally be rejected or abandoned completely, a celestial Esau. We see evidence of this in Isaiah 14 in the proverb against the king of Babylon, quote, And it shall be in the day Yahweh gives you rest, from your sorrow and from your trouble and the hard service in which you are made to serve, that you shall take up this proverb against the sovereign of Babel and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the gold gatherer ceased. Yahweh has broken the staff of the wrong, the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with ceaseless blows, he who ruled the nations in displeasure is persecuted and no one restrains. All the earth is at rest and at peace. They shall break forth into singing. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodcutter has come up against us. The grave from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. All the chief ones of the earth, it has raised up from their thrones all the sovereigns of the nations. All of them respond and say to you, Have you become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your arrogance has been brought down to the grave, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, you who laid low the nations. How you have fallen from the heavens, O Hillel, or, you know, mistranslated Lucifer, Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. For you have said in your heart, let me go up to the heavens, let me raise my throne above the stars of El. 
and let me sit in the Mount of Assembly on the sides of the north. Let me go up above the heights of the clouds. Let me be like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the sides of the pit. Those who see you stare at you and ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook rains, who made the world as wilderness and destroyed its cities, who would not open the house of his prisoners? End quote. So here we see a conflation between the king of Babylon, the man, and his heavenly self or counterpart, the heavenly man, Nimbus or Samael, whose lower selves included Cain, referred to here as, quote, the son of the dawn, uh, Nimrod, this king of Babylon, and various other incarnations, including the son of perdition or the Antichrist, which are really all just reincarnations of the first patriarch, Cain just like on the other side with Adam, Noah, Moses, Christ, etc., on the side of light. You got any comments on that, or you agree? Yeah. Okay. I have, I have, uh, well, you mentioned uh, the sides of the north, uh, the word uh-huh. is Zaphon. Zaphon, and, yeah. And, um, uh, I got suspicious, so I asked. Now, we've only got one check on this, but... Um, we were told that that is uh, what they're calling Mount Maru, so there's actually a name for it in Scripture. And there's no way to prove it wrong. There's no uh-huh. way to prove it either. You can't prove it either way. Uh-huh. That's what we were told. We'll run another check on it. But, um, mm-hmm. See, I, I, that would make sense to me, you know, the far north. And mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. We're going to see if uh, Hyperborea is mentioned there, too, because there's a passage in Isaiah it appears to possibly talk about that. You may not be familiar with it. It's earlier in the part of, earlier in uh, Isaiah. It's kind of a obscure passage. Mm-hmm. Um, even though um, Nimbus uh, originally had a pristine state, I still believe that his fall was predestined, just like Adam. Oh, yeah, of course. And uh-huh. all of these spirits were uh, pristine originally. And uh, they dwelt in this glorious realm that we talked about. But um, Azazel, this lesser, uh, he's, he's, um, we were told he's one of the, uh, he's below the 70, but he's in the dark 70. He's actually in the top seven. We were told he's fifth in rank. And, uh, but he was artificially darkened. Uh, because that realm was created before Adam fell. And uh, I'm, about the time. I'm assuming, oh, yeah, yeah it, it, yeah, it existed during the Golden Age. That's why Persephone went down there. So he was fitted for that role. And, um, and by the way, that, that realm is not hell, and neither is the upper uh, underworld, if you call Hades. That's not hell either. And I just want to give an update. I, I assume that according to the Enochian model, uh, where Enoch went outside the firmament and he gazed down, he saw these seven stars. And that's a classic example there where it's identifying stars with um, a celestial being. 
that's very important because that's the basis for believing that each one of these beings has a star, you see. But why does he call them stars? You see, people have that belief. So anyway, he looks down, he sees them, they're being tormented. And it's, um, it's a place where it's chaotic. Well, naturally, I'm going to assume that that is hell. Because Jesus said, he talked about the outer darkness. So I'm going, well, it must be outside the firmament. This makes perfect sense, right? We can run a book on this, but the angel told us that it is actually a realm. It's sure. not really here or there geographically. I'm just going, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, so, I mean, right now I don't know what that is. It, maybe it's a third place. Well, you know what's interesting about that is that's also what mainstream Christians generally believe about hell. Believe it's some other realm. You know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't have actual geographical yeah, that's been, Yeah, that actually comes from John Calvin. And I was always against that because I was maintaining it was a cavernous region somewhere. And yeah. according to what the angels said, that's not correct. It just shows you that, um, you know, the Bible doesn't speak very much about hell or heaven. That's just a fact. So... Yeah, it doesn't say much about uh, the devil either. <laughs> they think all the nope, information doesn't. is in there somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah. see, we had all this. One of the things that I'll be emphasizing over and over, and I may emphasize it today, but um, at some point, but we had all this supplementary um, information in different categories. There's like three main categories. Part of it is apostolic tradition. Then we had these uh, complementary texts, which were all done. We had all these apostolic letters. We had the oral Torah, but we also had a written. Uh, Torah that was inferior, came from Moses, and they're calling that the oral Torah because everything is gone. So they're assuming, and I believe that somebody wants us to assume that it's all gone, but I think that's a, a psyop. That's just the explanation. Why wouldn't they write a considerable portion of it down? I'm talking about the information that would be absolutely necessary, and they recognize this in Judaism in order to, you know, create a priesthood, build a temple, and things like that. The information is not there. Christians assume. See, they got that bibliocentric mentality, which Judaism doesn't have, that it's all in my Bible. It's not in your Bible. Um, yeah. We have different views about the, uh, the temple in Ezekiel. Okay, but anyone who believes that that's going to be a physical temple... Even if you believe that that's going to be the temple over there in Israel over there, okay, we call it a false Israel, you still don't have enough information to build it based on... Sure. But, so right there, you're going to have to have more information. Well, they realized that a long time ago. Christians haven't figured this out yet. They think everything's in the Bible somewhere. It's not in the Bible somewhere. It's nowhere found. So that is why we have to have extra-biblical revelation. There you go. Yeah. They're not thinking about that. Um, now, here's what's really interesting. Um, you can pound away at this um, new Christology, which is an old Christology, and then go to the passage, I think it might be in Hebrews 3, I was going to look it up, it could be in Hebrews 2, where it says that he made, he made, he, he, um, it was necessary for him to meet, be made like his brethren in every way or every respect. Yep. Okay. So he obviously has a higher... Celestial self, however you want to describe that. Yep. And I go back to what it says in Hebrews. You see, this is true for all of us. You see these patterns. The more you look, the more you see these patterns. One of the main patterns, by the way, is that Earth is a remarkable reflection of heaven. It, mm-hmm. And in Christians, they, I mean, they're so far away from that thinking, and that's 
That's a huge problem. And this is why they know so little about heaven. And they don't tell you on television because they don't want to tell you. No. They just don't really show you any details even in the movies. Uh, they're not going to help you. It, you know, if God's not going to help you, we're not going to help you. We'll just keep you in the dark, and that's what they did. And uh, But you could determine more things if you understood that earth was a reflection of heaven. And you will see a lot of these patterns. You can point them out. You know, for instance, there's a heavenly ark there in, uh, in uh, Revelation 11. And Moses was told, be very careful how you make these things because they are patterns. Yes, right there. Yep. You know, but they don't they don't pay attention to these things. And you see that in uh, Jesus's prayer, where he said, "On earth as it is in heaven." Yep, that's what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And the rabbis have a saying uh, similar to that. You know, so uh, mm-hmm. they overly react to the term "as above, so below." But that's actually a truism. Yep ancient truism that they've been uh, um, programmed to reject. So, yep. so they can't understand more. You can understand some things through typology. You know, you're going to have streams up there and mm-hmm. flowers, trees, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you? Anyway, mm-hmm. um, let me see here. Now, in Proverbs 8, you have an interesting entity called prudence. <laughs> hmm which creates some problems if you're trying to um, say that, you know, that wisdom is Jesus personifying. Um, because who's this other feminine personification that's differentiated from wisdom? And we've been told, that, well, the number one candidate would be Michael's consort. And that's who it is. Mm-hmm. That's what we've been told. And that is not her primary name. It's just yeah. like... Um, well, I don't think wisdom is uh, her primary name either, but... Yeah. Uh, uh, well, we're going to go over her names in different it's more of a It's more of a title. Uh, her, her, her name is uh, Halima. Uh, you're, talking about Michael's, you're talking about Michael's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Also in Proverbs 8, that's... One of the best places in Scripture, probably, for emanation language. Yeah, he's using emanation language if you look at the Hebrew. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The other thing about um, curses would have an emotional reaction to placing Nimbus, who becomes the adversary at some point be- between Michael and uh, and the son. Mm-hmm. It's virtually impossible to disprove this. It's virtually impossible. We're talking about him in this particular. Context where we only focus. We're only focusing on the males. Yep. So if we look at the females, that's a different seventy. And um, the celestial Eve would be over them. Well, we're not focused on them. That when we speak of her as seventy-one, we're only speaking within the context of the divine council. Now, obviously, he is. He's been thrown out of heaven. So this. Yep. Does apply now. Uh, earlier, you got a little bit confused in there, but it just has to do with emphasis. But anyway, it's virtually impossible uh, to disprove this because nowhere in Scripture does it get clarification about his rank. Does it tell you he's below the 70? Does it say that he's in the 70? 
does it say that he's one of the seven before the throne? I, I, I would think he would be evidence that that's not true. But as far as being in, in between the son and Michael, it says absolutely nothing, um, either for or against. So mm-hmm. they're going to have an emotional reaction to that, and that's why I, I prefer to use the word nimbus, um, just like I prefer um, if I'm speaking to a new ager, I don't, I'm not going to say the word demon. Uh, I'm going to say negative entity, because you will see the react to the word demon. Oh, well, it's Christian, do I don't believe that. Or the word Satan. Or the word hell. You say, well, a negative realm. Well, a dark realm. Oh, and there's no negative reaction. You see that? So these people have been programmed to have an emotional response. And you say, well, what's the point since they already know what you're talking about? Well, I just explained it. You're, I mean, it actually literally affects you. Every time you hear it, whether you recognize it or not, so pay attention, you know. Mm-hmm. And also in earlier podcasts, when I was not distinguishing between upper and lower sun, again, the upper sun, if you want to call them that, this, this is only when we're differentiating between the two suns or whatever the heck, the two. Yep. Um, I was not making it clear all the time that um, the Adam in Proverbs 831 is actually the celestial Adam. Uh, when I was not differentiating between those two, I was making it sound like um, the Elohim came from Adam himself. And that's a defective view. And this, this illustrates why we need a celestial Adam. Yep. Because that's Adam there, and it's talking about his sons, and um, there's no evidence that Adam has even been created yet. And uh, besides, it's talking about the progeny of Adam, so that makes even less sense, and that, it makes no sense whatsoever. Yep. And so you actually have, uh, it, it, there's a necessity to have a celestial Adam. We need one, and yet the, the Christian church has done virtually nothing uh, to develop this or even acknowledge that passage. And, and you can see there, I talk about the system of control that we're in, and we have this injection of theological propaganda, that the institutional church or just God's people, they are actually being steered in certain directions, and they're being steered away from certain things. What other conclusion can you have? The same with Luke 3.38. Another passage would be, Jesus said, at the resurrection you'll be equal with angels. They have not, they've done nothing with that either. There's, um, in a cult, what they do is they shut down discussions. If you're familiar with cults, uh, these discussions don't exist ever. And this indicates, again, that Christianity is some type of a cult. There's absolutely no question about that. So. Okay. Go ahead. Well, there's a reason I use, you know, I compliment the name Nimbus with, like, the name Samael, stuff like that. I mean, it's just to show that... uh. You know, he is, he does have a long, you know, he appears in tradition. You know, we're not just, I don't just want to just use the name Nimbus itself, because then people will be like, oh, you're pulling that name out of nowhere, you know, that has no historical precedent. I mean. Well, can I comment on that? The reason uh, we use that term is we actually ask the angel for a term that would be less reactionary. Mm-hmm. And I go, we really need a term and uh, a name. And he gave us that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I'm just saying why I throw, like, because Samael, that's still a better term than Satan. You know what I mean? 
Uh, we asked about some of y'all. I don't remember what we were told, Chuck. But, uh, I mean, the mainstream Christians is gonna it's gonna have a better. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also why I put together this outline as well with all these Bible passages to show that you can derive actually most of these things that we're talking about out of the Bible. We're not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. You know what I mean? Another reason why I wanted to to get some kind of a a name there, I haven't asked him about the integrity of this name. Um, But, um, you know, for instance, um, Azareth, she's got many names. But um, the Satan, that's not his name. His original name, he had original name, and that's the most important name, and his name was not Satan. So, yes, there's some credibility to all this, you know. I don't know if it's Nimbus. I don't actually, I'm not assuming at all that Nimbus was his original name. I haven't asked, so. Sure. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably a big secret. And uh, sometimes when we acquire the angels, I mean, people think they're just going to drop everything in our lap. They're they're reluctant to... uh, I'll say, no, that's a secret or something like that, or that's not to be known. I mean, I don't think I communicate it often enough. But you, you can't just get in there and just, you know, push the buttons and get all these answers. It's, it's not easy. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I said uh, Nimbus or Samael was also known as Baal in the Old Testament. He generally was the prominent sun god amongst the pagan nations. His star or celestial object is the black or anti-sun, the opposite of the heavenly Adam's sun, you know, which is the sun we're all familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, can um, I comment on that? Yeah. I just asked yesterday. It made perfect sense to me, based on typology, that this would be a sun. And then I realized that, um, how do we know that for sure? Maybe it's more properly referred to as a star. You there, Chuck? Yeah. Maybe we were told we were told it's not a sun. Well, that's what we were told yesterday. So I I, I always go with the revelation. So that they're probably they're probably just calling it a sun to 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 uh, exalt him more than I don't know. I mean, I've been calling this sun. If you notice that podcast I did. Uh, the one with the pet goatee video uh, in it. Uh, I, at one time it said uh, one time it said dark sun, and I changed it to anti sun, and now it says dark star, and that's why I changed it because of that revelation. Well, we're going to check on that, but um, I don't think it's a, a sun at this point. And we got uh, some information about the nature of that object too, and it's completely <laughs> something that people not even thought about. To the Illuminati, it's, they probably consider it their son. I guess that's why they call it the Black oh, yeah. Sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it does project darkness. There's no question. Oh about yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. It emanates darkness. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I went on. I said he is described as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians two. Uh, what is that? Twelve. Twelve, maybe. Yeah, that or two, no, 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 two one, two, one through two. There we go, quote. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, end quote. And I said he generally fulfilled that function until he suffered a defeat and was cast out of heaven to the earth at the latter end of the first century. Mm-hmm. 
obviously he's not the prince of the, well, he's still the prince of the power of the air, but he's not, he's not, uh, he doesn't have that celestial office anymore. He was cast out. If you read along there, there's no justification for putting that in the future. Uh, in other words, it hasn't happened yet, or possibly it happened just recently. I mean, it, nobody would know if it was still future beyond the first century. But if you're reading along there, you're going to have to take a, an unnatural prophetic leap, leap, which I call yeah. catapult theology. Uh, it, it, no, based on what? Uh, it's a first century event, and uh, later it does take a prophetic leap. That's why it's difficult to... Um, to understand there, because the woman uh, goes into the wilderness a second time. See, those are two different historical periods, even though some people place them both in, in, in the future and Preterish place them both in the past. But um, uh, he comes down to create havoc. Yeah. He says, woe to the earth and the sea, and guess what that is? The first century cataclysm. Mm-hmm. So even at that late point, it's still in the first century. And then sure. it makes a prophetic leap I believe from Revelation twelve thirteen to Revelation fourteen. That's that's a prophetic leap, but not until then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've labored over that to understand that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I said uh, I also think he has spoken of in Job with its description of the Leviathan. I think the Leviathan was a real earthly creature, some kind of chaos monster in a unique category of its own, and Job 41 is a double metaphor, just like the Isaiah 14 passage, where it is also talking about a spiritual power or demon slash Elohim that is symbolized by an earthly type. You know, Mm -hmm. Leviathan was the earthly creature that uh, was symbolized by the spiritual power behind him. You can see this with the language of, quote, he is king over all the sons of pride, end quote, yeah. which makes no sense in the context of an earthly animal. And this connection is especially apparent in the Septuagint translation. Now, the L- I have an LXX translation. I mean, it basically describes Leviathan as like some kind of demon. Not even, you couldn't even remotely pull out that he's an animal from the you know, Septuagint. No, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that, but uh, what we're seeing here is the ancient mind is different. Of course, they understood this higher and lower aspect, which typology it's, yeah. it's, been, it's been completely lost. So that's what you, even though I didn't comment on it, that's what you see there again in Isaiah 14, where you have a some people saying, "Well, this is Satan," and then people saying, uh, "No, this is Nebuchadnezzar," or "This is Nimrod," because it says man, yeah. right? And they're saying, yeah. "Well, this has to be Satan." Here, it's obvious that it's ridiculous that Nimrod. I think it's Nimrod, could uh, set his throne above the stars in heaven. Uh, yeah. You, have to, you yep. could say that's an empty boast, but I don't think he was that delusional that it's not talking about Nimrod. Well, it couldn't be talking about either when it says he was cast out of heaven. Right. You have uh-huh. fallen from heaven, right? It's talking about a heavenly being. Uh-huh. So, I mean, the beast is identified with... Um, at some level, even though the beast is uh, actually the Antichrist, what we call the Antichrist. Anyway. I mean, John did, even though it doesn't say um, anything about the Antichrist in Revelation, he did write First and Second John. He talks about the Antichrist. But it's a man that is identified with Nimbus. Yep. And uh, so um, you can see that there, there there's some basis for why a powerful being like that, that's you know, fearsome, with great power, would personify Nimbus 
Yeah. Uh-huh. But in this particular case, that's not his, <laughs> his lower self. It's just a beast. Oh. I agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah it's just some, is, kind of cre- uh, some kind of creature, yeah. It, it may have been the mightiest beast of all. Of, I mean, yep, are, I think you, so. Now, there's, see, there's two Leviathans. There's a Leviathan. There's one spoken in Job. I have to look that up. But there's a Leviathan in Isaiah 27.1. Mm-hmm. This is a different Leviathan, but it, it personifies the greater Leviathan. Uh-huh. Now, is this the behemoth, or is that a different one? Because there's two of them in, in Job. The behemoth is the other one in Job. Okay, yeah. All right. Yeah. And what about that one? That I don't, I don't know if that one. I don't know if that one really uses the same kind of. I don't know if it's symbolized by anything. It just kind of describes that one more in mundane, like this is an earthly creature kind of thing. Now, Christians are very curious about Satan. They're very eager to find uh, information about him in the Bible. But we've been told um, years apart that the passage in Ezekiel 28 is talking about a lesser dark Elohim, and actually there's no way to refute that. And I can't, there's not enough information to prove it either. Sure. So people, they're going to believe that's Satan, they want it to be Satan, but we've been told. It, it could be um, uh, the prince that's um, directly below him. Um, He's one of the seven, yeah. Um, I, I've never asked about that, but he's, again, see, his lower image is the king of Tyre. Yeah. See, if you really go through these scriptures, you start to see these patterns, and then you stand back and, and you ask yourself this question, are Christians familiar with these patterns, and are they able to interpret them? And if they try to interpret them, do they consider these patterns um, when they attempt to interpret them? And the answer is no. They're suffering from a lack of knowledge. You see that? So they're not even considering these things, but as, it, as you go on, you start to see the pattern of upper and lower, and eventually when I do a Bible study trying to prove that we have a you know, higher self, we've actually done a pretty good job already based on the passage there in Hebrews that he had to be made like his brethren. And what does it say? Does it qualify it? No, every respect. And also it says that when we see him, we will be like him. That doesn't qualify that either. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, so, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and then, it, then also, if you uh, add in the passage where it says that the resurrection you will be equal with angels, that's yep. dead on equal. Yep. Yeah, so they're blended together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I also want to comment on uh, Leviathan a little bit more. There's other a lot of other passages that refer to him as being basically destroyed. There's one in the Psalms that actually said the, the Leviathan had plur, a plural number of heads, like multiple heads. Yeah. You familiar with that? Yeah, the sea monster. Yeah, I actually think the Leviathan, this earthly creature, was like basically like the Hydra in Greek mythology. I actually think this was a yeah. real creature. <laughs> it could also breathe fire. And I think uh, he was destroyed in the first century, uh, which descri- explains all these passages where it says his his carcass, you know, he was destroyed, and his carcass was food for the beasts. And I think uh, he, he died, you know, in that first century cataclysm, this earthly creature, which also, you know, it was typological of uh, the power behind him being Nimbus, his defeat in the first century. Mm-hmm. So, that's just my theory on that. But 
there's an interesting passage in Job 3.8 that I mentioned. Uh, it says, let those curse it who curse today who are ready to rouse up Leviathan or raise up Leviathan. So you yep. can speculate, what does that mean? <laughs> yep, yep. And now, that's, a, that's not the Leviathan in the latter part of Job. That's, not, that's no. a different Leviathan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, this brings us next to the Jewish legend and tradition of Leviathan and the spiritual power above him being created with a female twin or consort. Uh, in the Jewish legend, they had a tradition of Leviathan being basically created in a male-female pair. There's a female Leviathan. And thus, the female consort of Nimbus or Samael, uh, which I wrote here, the dark goddess or Rahab, exactly the name you gave earlier. It said, I believe that the dark goddess and female Leviathan is mentioned in scripture as Rahab. Uh, we see her mentioned in Job 9.13, quote, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab, end quote. Oh. Thus identifying Rahab with a spiritual entity of darkness, whom I contend is also symbolized by an earthly creature, just like with the Leviathan, who was the female counterpart of the earthly creature, the Leviathan. I think that I basically think there was only two types of this creature, like it didn't reproduce. There was just a male female pair swimming in the waters. Mm-hmm. Leviathan and a, there was a female part, or female Leviathan too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they reproduced, then that would have been... <laughs> I don't know if anything would have survived. This is seen in Job 26.12, quote, By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab, end quote. It seems to me that's also talking about some kind of earthly creature that was destroyed, just like Leviathan maybe in the first century. As well as Isaiah 51.9, quote, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, uh, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? End quote. Uh, in Psalm 89.10, quote, You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. End quote. Uh, Various other passages also describe her as the spiritual power behind Egypt, who suffered a defeat when Yahweh led the Israelites out through the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea. This is alluded to in the passages above, as well as Isaiah 37, quote, Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her, quote, Rahab who sits still, end quote. So uh, Rahab, or the dark goddess, was actually the spiritual uh, entity behind Egypt. Yeah, she personified Egypt. Yeah. You, you know. That, uh, where uh, entities uh, personify a kingdom. Yep. That explains Egypt's, you know, loftiness and power. They had a very lofty... Channing uh, the night that the Illuminati is using Trump to personify America. People need to understand that. Um, I'd have to explain why it, it, you know, that's important, but they're not going to do it here. But they're doing that. You can see it. Okay. Well, that's all I had on Rahab. That's all you can really get out of the Bible. Did you have anything else on her? 
what did you say about um, these underlings of uh, Rahab? Yeah, that was uh, Job 9.13. It says, quote, God will not turn back his anger beneath him bowed or bowed the helpers of Rahab. The helpers of Rahab. Uh, In Proverbs 9.1, wisdom refers to lady, we call her lady wisdom, uh, Sophia. Uh, See, um, you know, some people don't even know that uh, the, the Hebrew word for wisdom is Sophia. Yep. So it says in Proverbs 9.1, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. And I believe those seven pillars are the seven angels before the throne. Okay, hold on, hold on. I'm going to get to that later. Uh-huh. Well, hold I want to mention this just because of what it says in Proverbs 9.3. Not that. And it says she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. I distinguish between the two. So. Yeah, hold on. We're gonna we'll talk about that okay. when I get to it. Right. Okay. So next, uh, I talk about the. I move on to the seventy, the divine council, the royal sons, the outer court. Uh, next comes the seventy sons of El or Elohim who emerged out of the heavenly Adam uh, and his consort as their head. We can deduce this primarily from Deuteronomy thirty-two eight through nine. Quote. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided the sons of Adam, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, end quote. Some translations will read, quote, sons of Israel there in verse 8, but if you look at the older LXX or Septuagint version as opposed to the later Masoretic text, it reads, quote, sons of God, which corresponds with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and thus indicates the former reading uh, was a later corruption you know, of it being sons of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things we can deduce out of this passage is that the heavenly Adam, or lower Yahweh, called, quote, the Most High in this passage, uh, as the one seated on the throne, divided the sons of Adam and gave to each of their heavenly counterparts, it's only referring to the Adamites, a nation of inheritance as its tribal deity. Uh, this parallels the table of nations given in Genesis 10 through 11, which follows the division at Babel and thus relates the same event, just from an earthly perspective, where the Adamites were separated into 70 nations, each being distributed to one of the 70 Elohim as its tribal deity. As we can see later in Psalm 82, these beings, or gods, were not morally incorruptible, nor possessed a static nature, as the heavenly Adam, or lower Yahweh, is rebuking them for their corrupt rules of the Adamite nations they were given as inheritance. Quote, God, Elohim, singular, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, Elohim, plural, he holds judgment. Quote, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak uh, and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. End quote. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, 
and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. End quote. Every Elohim is technically a, quote, son of God, but the 70 delineated here denotes the royal court of the heavenly counterparts of the Adamites. They are a privileged class, a royal family. Uh, they constitute the divine council in heaven, and from that Sirach passage, I also contend that they each have a female consort. You know, or in Sirach, it says, God created everything in pairs. Uh, this brings us to the number 140, with four above them, being the heavenly Adam, Sophia, and Nimbus, and Rahab, which thus is the secret behind the number 144. They also have a dark counterpart as well, who has a female consort as well. This forms the dark 70 or 140. Got any comments on that? Yeah, I came up with the number 144. That was my historical contribution. I believe the people understood that at one time, but I've never heard anybody mention that. Uh-huh. And I put it in uh, a couple of podcast titles. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to say something else. I was going to write something down, but I'm thinking about different things at the same time. So. Okay. So move on. I just wanted to say before we forget that the passage in Micah 5 2. Yeah. Um, it says, From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I think that's yep. talking about Adam. But I could be wrong, but I, I, at this point, I think that's Adam. So I didn't say that earlier. Okay. Mm-hmm. Go it could have a double meaning, though, too, still. It could be referring to his. His heavenly self as well. Well, he's going to rule as a resurrected being. So, but see, it's talking about an earthly birth there in Micah 5. Sure. So that's why I would go with that, because that's in the next verse. So. And also, okay. I want to point out that I used to get confused, because I would say, well, I mean, there, actually, I think this is still true. Um, I don't emphasize it as much, but it, it comes down to whether or not there was a heavenly emanation of, you know, the earthly Christ in heaven. But setting that aside, the um, the heavenly Father has an emanation out of the upper Father. Yep. And that's what you see there um, after the Golden Age. But anyway, um, the reason I bring this up is because Christians ignore the passage in Psalms 2 where it says that um, it's talking about being born. Or mm-hmm. let's, let's not emphasize that. But it's talking about becoming the son. It says, today you be, become my son. Well, mm-hmm. that's clearly in the first century. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I mean, they don't like to acknowledge that because they need to create uh, a, a, a doctrine. If they're not going to distinguish between these two entities of a higher and lower birth, but they don't do that. And the reason they don't because they ignore the origin of the celestial body of the Heavenly Father. He acquired yep. a celestial body at some point, and they, they have not developed that doctrine. They ignore that. And they focused on the earthly body. And they get themselves into trouble because um, it creates problems in Psalm chapter 2. Yep. There's, there's two verses 
I mean, you know, when I talked about the firstborn of creation or being begotten, even though that term is prob- probably Yeah, that's referring to his heavenly self. Yeah, that's heavenly. That's not Psalm uh, uh, chapter 2 there, and yet they don't want to acknowledge this. That's why Christ says, in Revelation, uh, Christ says in Revelation exactly what Yahweh said in the Old Testament. He says, I am the first and the last. He's talking about the same kind of thing. You know, yeah. he was the first thing to emanate. Uh-huh. It's heavenly self, ancient of days. Well, they want to downplay the term firstborn. Because what they're yeah. doing, they're overreacting to the what they refer to the, as the Arian heresy. Um, yep. It, I'm, just, I don't, I'm not an Arian, okay? And uh, uh-huh. I believe that the sun is eternally preexistent in a qualified sense. I mean, everybody is, so it's no problem with me. But yep. um, because they don't have that concept of him acquiring a celestial body, uh, they're overreacting to the church heresy of Arianism. That's what they're doing, yeah. overreacting to it. You see that it's not a balanced position. No. So, and the reason is, is because they have no doctrine of emanation. See, emanation is the middle position. They don't have that. So they have to swing too far to the extreme. That's the Trinitarian view. Yep. Let's say it doesn't really mean that. It has more to do with rank, and they will talk about, they'll go back to Esau and uh, Jacob or David, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they will overemphasize that. Well, that, that's true, but it doesn't cancel that out. Right. So that's what they do. Mm-hmm. It's not, not a balanced position. Mm-hmm. And they don't even bother to see to refute emanationism, and they don't talk about a theoretical middle position. They just ignore it. That's a cultic behavior. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, I say that because I want people to lose confidence in it, because Trinitarians, they're overly confident, and you can undercut that confidence very quickly by just talking about a series of things that they're completely unfamiliar with, so they don't really have any kind of intelligent response. Except they will say, this sounds like strange doctrine to me. Well, quote the King James, this, this sounds like strange doctrine. Because you're claiming some kind of um, occult knowledge from their view. Because they think, they hold to the view that orthodoxy has been standardized. You see that? Yep. And yet, you ask these people, are you familiar with the concept of theological propaganda? And they just look at you with a blank look and you say, can you think any authority can prove that there was never an injection of theological propaganda? Then you go on and say, do you think there's any authority that can measure the degree of the injection of theological propaganda? This is the way I operate with them because I know (laughs) they can't can't do anything. That's why I linger around those little issues, you know, and then, yeah, and I get them backpedaling and uh, nothing good is going to happen after that. Back to the drawing board. We're trying to get you to think, and uh, they don't want to think. Anyway. Okay, so next we have the inner family, the seven brothers and seven sisters and their dark counterparts. Uh, There is an inner family within the royal court, or 140, comprising of the seven sons and seven daughters. The seven sons are associated with the classical seven planets, and the seven daughters, their consorts, are associated with the seven stars of the Pleiades. The seven brothers can be deduced from Revelation 1-4, quote, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, end quote. And Revelation 1.20, quote, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which they sawest are the seven churches, end quote. Also Revelation 4, quote, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elder, or 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. End quote. So, from the above passages, we can deduce that the seven sons of God stand in the closest proximity before his throne, i.e. the heavenly Adam. They are also associated with the menorah, symbolism behind the menorah. Mm-hmm. Well, First Enoch 20 gives us the names of the seven brothers, quote, And these are the names of the holy angels who watch. Uriel, one of the holy angels who is over the world and over Tartarus. Raphael, one of the holy angels who is over the spirits of men. Braguel, one of the holy angels who takes vengeance on the world of the luminaries. Michael, one of the holy angels, to wit, he that is set over the best parts of mankind and over chaos. Serachiel, one of the holy angels, who is set over the spirits, who sin in the spirit. Gabriel, one of the holy angels, who is over paradise and and the serpents and the cherubim. Remiel, one of the holy angels, whom God set over those who rise, end quote. And as we can see, only Michael and Gabriel are mentioned by name in Scripture. Now, the order that it gave those names to, that's not the actual order that they are in the hierarchy. It's just it's just given the names of the seven. Mm-hmm. Um, the seven spirits can also be deduced from Zechariah 3.9, quote, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, end quote, to which Zechariah 4.10 says, quote, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth, end quote. Revelation 5.6 uh, gives the meaning behind these. It says, quote, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There's an... Okay. So that told you what the, you know, the seven eyes represented. Seven spirits of God. Mm -hmm. So I said uh, there's an upper four within the seven. These are the archangels. 
which are Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, and Raphael. So that's it for the seven brothers. You want to comment on the seven brothers? Uh, you said that the only Michael and uh, Gabriel were in the, the scriptures, but... Uh, Bob well, by name. The, by name. Apocrypha. Yeah. But the, yeah. the Septuagint, it had the Apocrypha. The Jews had rejected it. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. I, I think the Illuminati took it away from them. And they had the book, the book of Tobit in there, too, with Raphael. Yeah. Yeah, Raphael's in there. But of course, in the Book of Enoch, you have uh, you're all of them. You got all of them. Yeah, you got all of them. Yeah. Um, but they don't have the uh, names of the seven sisters. No. No. So you have to go by revelation. I can talk about right. that later. <clears throat> right. Also, talk about their colors. They all have a different color. And the seven sisters have to do with the rainbow. That's why it's a rainbow around the throne. But uh, we're not sure. We try to get revelation on that, but it's so unclear um, why it's depicted as an emerald. I mean, one thing you'd say, it's um, it was corrupted or something. The emerald rainbow doesn't make any sense, but every rainbow has seven spectrums, and that's why it represents the uh, seven sisters. Mm-hmm. Is that all you want to comment on the seven brothers then, or um, we talk about their nature at all? Or well, it's kind of complex. Maybe we can talk about that later. But um, there's a inner and, and outer aspect of like the spirit of Christ. Right. The body of Christ is um, a reflection of the spirit of Christ. Christians have never developed a doctrine of the spirit of Christ. You don't understand? No. Uh-huh. But the spirit of Christ is in heaven with the body of Christ is on earth. So we all understand the body of Christ. But the spirit of Christ has to do with heavenly vessels. And so Christ Elohim. is head. But there's also there's plurality and singularity at the same time. And this is a concept that we don't have in Christianity apart from the body of Christ. We all understand that, the body of Christ, but we don't have understanding outside that. So within the spirit of Christ, there's an upper hierarchy and this yeah. has to do with the seven Elohim, um, because there's, in a qualified sense, they are all one. Um, yep. There's eight of them, mm-hmm. and uh, they're an extension of him. They all are one functional unit. They like different know? aspects. Yeah. Yep. But within that, you still have hierarchy. Yeah. Now they <laughs> communicate this uh, from just like in, in the works of Alice Bailey. She was the third president of the Theosophical Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a book of hers, which I absolutely do not recommend. Johnny went out and bought it. I said, that was, you shouldn't have done that. I forget the name of it, but I mean, she's talking about these seven rays with seven colors. Yep. yep. And uh, that's, that's exactly right. But she's talking about the dark Elohim scene. Sure. Obviously. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the concept there, yeah. And uh, it's all one functional unit. This yep. explains why, um, you know, there does seem to be a collective sense of the seven spheres before the throne, but scholars are confused because they don't have this knowledge. No. It has to do with emanation, by the way. This, this is an ongoing emanation. Uh, it, it's, it's a sense where it's emanation, a sense where it's not, you know. But, um, mm-hmm. but um, they tend to, they'll actually mistranslate the passage, this is in Revelation 1, and say this has to do with the sevenfold Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that in, 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 the, in the language. Right, right. That's a concept 
that they're forcing upon the tax because they don't let's just face it uh in christianity they they, they have an overemphasis on christ right they don't seem to have any knowledge of a heavenly son at all well obviously they don't and you can see no. that by going to um revelation 411 because the, the father figure on the throne is given power by a god behind yeah. him and they have done nothing to develop that at all. I've never heard that before. And then the Lamb has given power in Revelation 5 as well. And he's given power from the, the Heavenly Father there. Yep. And um, so they're going to understand that this is the Holy Spirit because they're de- what they do, they de-emphasize, not only do they de-emphasize angels, that they speak very little about um, these seven Elohim. But for, yeah. See, everything's so dumbed down. They don't even say Elohim. They say angels. And, and see, they're ignoring their nature. That has nothing mm-hmm. to do with nature. So you can see how incredibly dumbed down this is, and it really is. Yeah. So they're trying to fit it in uh, with Trinitarian belief system. You've got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have no tangible doctrine of the Spirit of Christ, which has to do with singularity and, and multiplicity. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're going to try to explain it with the Holy Spirit. And that's all they have. They don't have much to work with. And that's what right. they do. But they, not only do they, they de-emphasize angels, but you can see in Protestant Christianity, there's absolutely no question whatsoever that they de-emphasize Make it real simple, Michael the Archangel. They don't talk. How, how often do they talk about Michael in Protestant churches? Very Hardly at all. Very little. Yeah. Now, we're saying that this is deliberate. This is the result of deliberate propaganda. And you, what I say earlier, you can see how they're, they're steering the people. And how does this happen? Well, we live in a system of control. And institutional Christianity emerged out of the system of control. And the people in this um, institution, they have not figured out any significant conspiracies at all. They're dumb sheep. And that's a fact. Yep. Show me something considerable that they've figured out. They don't even think about significant infiltration of the church historically. So they're really children when it comes to it. They're not, uh, they don't know about these things. So they're not looking. They're not even suspicious. Same old problem. They're not engaged. And they haven't been engaged in a long time. Their minds are not engaged. So that's why they would be suspicious of us. They would claim that we have occult knowledge and it's all a trick of the devil. They're actually superstitious. Superstitious people are people who are lacking information. Now, we've already seen they're lacking information. But they think these superstitious people are in the medieval era, but um, you can make a good case that they're even more superstitious because I think the qualitative truths, the important truths, the foundational truths, they had back then. It looks like they didn't have them, but they actually lost them over centuries. centuries. They didn't lose them overnight. They were gradually extracted. And I think, you know, the uh, printing press was one of the most important inventions in history. But they actually used that because it was so important, just like they're using a computer now, uh, to codify information and keep this information out of the books. And it is out of the books. You see, it's not in the books. And um, so books are good and they're bad. You know, it's, it's not all good and it's not all bad. 
So they tried to control all that. The book printing, they did a pretty good job. I, I think there was books out there that they had been taken away um, and yeah. removed. Yeah. That's still going on. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, though, uh, did you want to give their true order in the hierarchy? The Seven Brothers? Uh, I thought you listed them. Yeah, just the names, but that's not uh, their actual... That's not their actual place in the hierarchy, is it? How uh, is it not? Believe it or not, I can't actually do it off the top of my head. Um, uh, I, I also want to emphasize what you said there, that you know, the, um, this, that seven-faceted stones, some translations will say facets, some will say yep. eyes. But those are the seven eyes of the Lord. Yep. And those are the seven spheres, those are the seven angels, those are the seven Elohim. I, I, see, I call them the seven brothers sometimes. Yeah. If you're going to talk about the seven sisters, then you can talk about the seven brothers. It makes it more personal, you know. But uh, we've been told, uh, you see, it's a problem with going, you know, by the uh, the canon of 66 books, okay? If you go by the canon of 66 books, then you're going to go with the proof texting method, which I will be um, using scripture to prove is not biblical. And that's going to be probably one of my greatest theological contributions. Uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> I can only take so much credit from it because it, it all started with what the angels said. And that's a good place for people to really critique me. Okay, It, it has to do with the first century religion was radically different. It had to do with apostolic authority and that's how they determined uh, um, heresy and things like that. It, they weren't using the proof texting method, although it was complementary. Anyway, if you look at the, the canon of 66 books and you use the proof texting method, you're going to conclude that there's only one archangel, and that would be Michael, because he's the only one that's named as an archangel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could theorize that there's seven archangels, okay? And I think I might have played around with that. But we were told that there's actually four. Mm-hmm. And so there's a... There's an upper pantheon within the upper pantheon of seven, mm-hmm. and um, that would be Raphael and uh, Uriel and Michael and Gabriel. Yep. And uh, and we were just told recently that those heavenly beasts. Um, I think it might be in Revelation four. Four living creatures. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the living creatures. Those. That's actually them. Yep. Yeah. And we've been told that they have three primary they're, uh, form, yeah, they're forms. Yeah, they're different forms. Yeah, it's complete them all. Yeah. yeah, they have a human form. They have a beast uh, form, uh, a beastly form, and they have a glorious form. And the glorious form Winged. is when they have wings. Yeah. And so you would never know that. If you use the proof texting method, you can't disprove it. And we'll be the first to tell you you can't prove it either. And this is a lot of things that you run into. You can't disprove it or prove it. Uh, the Christians have been, they've been trained to focus narrowly on the Bible to keep them away from any kind of um, auxiliary information, which they will call extra-biblical revelation. Actually, if you're thinking at all, you actually have to have, quote-unquote, extra-biblical revelation to interpret the text, because the Bible doesn't... The only sense in where the Bible interprets itself is if something is just, you know, straightforward, anybody can see it, or it's the context. But if the context uh, falls short, because 
passage after passage after passage. You can't determine it by the context. And you're going to have to have extra biblical revelation to interpret the Bible. Yep. How are you going to prove that not one single person ever had an extra biblical revelation to interpret the Bible? That is completely absurd. Anybody who says there's no such thing as extra biblical revelation, they're not even thinking. And you couldn't prove it anyway. And, and by the way, the Bible says nothing against that. Now, they're obviously using um, um, a form of revelation there that's apart from the text when they're casting lots to determine the deacons. So that falls mm-hmm. apart immediately. That's mm-hmm. a form of extra biblical revelation. So uh, they don't want you thinking about these things. And they want you to be a scared little child, you know, err on the side of caution. And it's actually superstition is what it is. It's, it's, it's being fearful of something that's, the Bible says nothing against. So uh, the technical term is augury. Um, but we're talking about uh, good and bad divination, if you want to call it that. And I have to admit that the Bible doesn't speak with precision about these things. I mean, it doesn't condemn the cup of divination with um, Joseph. It, it, you know, it mentions it twice. So you can't yeah. actually prove that. You can't prove that all divination is bad. So when is it bad and when, is it, when isn't it? Because it, 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 the Bible appears in the book of Moses to make these condemnations, and you're going to assume that means any kind of divination. But then you look elsewhere in Scripture and go, hold it. It says cup of divination. So do we have any proof that that's condemned? We don't. Okay. So there's exceptions, just like with Hebrews 9.27, uh, where it's a point on a man who wants to die. You see, right, there's pe- other people dying. So the Bible makes these sweeping statements, and the way I interpret it is that if, it, if there's an exception in the context, then there's an exception. Don't use the sweeping statement to nullify the exception. Acknowledge both. In other words, here's an exception. You know, there's another passage there where it says, when the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Does that sound like an unholy thing? Absolutely not. Right. Because if it's an occult uh, practice, then God is the one that's behind the whole thing, and that becomes completely absurd. No. So you can see that they have been psyoped into not seeking. They don't want them seeking any kind of extracurricular information. They want to shut it all down. That's exactly what they do. And you're a very good boy if you just stay with your Bible. You're a very good Protestant. We'll give you a big reward. Yeah. You're a very good Berean. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be talking about that, too. Because, like I said, every prophet that ever came from God, you couldn't test them uh, with Scripture because they all said things that were nowhere found in Scripture. So how are you going to test them? Mm-hmm. So he was just that was just an overall... Um, Something you know that he was condemn, uh, approving them. Of, you know, saying that's good that you did that. You know what I mean? I mean? In other words, do that as far as you can. We have to acknowledge that you know when God does a new thing, like it says in uh, Isaiah two different times. Nobody knows the particulars of that new thing. It's future. It, you know, replacement theology tries to place everything in, in the first century. Says it's all fulfilled in Christ. It's just 
butchering all these scriptures. You have to spiritualize everything. It's future, you know what I mean? Most people have projected that now because they have a dispensational mindset, right? So they're on my side. Okay, so who are these dispensationalists that are going to give the details about what this new thing entails? There's no authority. Okay? Well, you're going to have to have revelation. Yes. Okay? Then they have this one little thing, well, we're going to go up to heaven in the preacher of rapture. That's for the Jews, so that's why God didn't tell us. <laughs> that's what a dispensationalist would say, if he was really thinking. You know what I mean? That's, for, that's not for us to know. So we're Christians, and uh, we belong to spiritual Israel, and God has shown us everything we need to know right in the Bible. And uh, we're going to leave before the tribulation. We're going to go up to heaven, and, uh, and God will communicate these new things to Israel. Um, when they're restored. But that's not for us to know. We're supposed to focus on the Bible, Dave. <laughs> that's what they would say. So that's the best response you could give, but that's completely false, of course. But, uh, so you don't have to... Because the people have to, inherit the earth. Go ahead. True rank, then, of the seven brothers? What's that? You don't have the true rank, then, of the seven brothers? Not off the top of my head, no. I'm not good with that kind of thing, and uh, I always tell people that um, I'm not good with uh, Sunday uh, school questions, and I can never remember the seven wives of David. They have odd names. <laughs> okay. Because the Sunday school teacher, they could do something like that. But all the stuff we're talking about, it'd be, their head would be spinning. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't have good recall. I have good recall with ideas and concepts. That's what I'm good at, not the, the details, <clears throat> you know, the trivial details. And when I say trivial, I don't mean like a negative thing, but it's lesser quality information. We're talking about the, the bigger truths here, the overarching things, you know. So, yeah, I hold to the view that there's four archangels. That's what we've been told. And that's okay. something that... Um, it's hinted at, and the number four is very important in the Bible, but it's not something you can prove. But um, it's too bad that people, Protestants, ignore the Apocrypha because there's a lot more supplementary information there that's been taken away from us. And you could hold to the theory that um, the Illuminati's not stupid. They have a very low opinion of the Roman Catholic people. And so it was less of a, a risk to allow them to have a larger cannon. The Protestants were the threat, so they, they gave them a smaller cannon. <laughs> but that, when you do that, you're not factoring in God. You I always factor in God. <clears throat> I think it's a progressive um, thing. It has to do with devolution. I mean, it's kind of complex because as you go through the centuries, you're getting less and less truth. But now we're looking at the early um, beginnings of an upswing, okay? But the problem is you just you can't use a computer to um, replace revelation. The information is either there or, or it isn't, right? If it's lost, you can't recover it on Google, right? Now, I've seen example after example where you're searching around, you know, for some remnant of this, and it, there's nothing there. It's gone. So those are the kind, those, that's lesser knowledge. Those are the things that were, some of the details that we're starting to put together now. Um, but we're not able to fill in these gaps because 
um, we need revelation. And people can see this eventually. It's, it, it's obvious. But they are programmed to be suspicious and you know, point the finger and uh, say that you're uh, questioning orthodoxy and all these things. So you, you can deal with that very quickly. So. All right. Let's move on here. The seven sisters. I said uh, the seven brothers have female consorts, which appear in a couple of places in Scripture, but are more well-known and established outside of it than, quote-unquote, mythology, etc. Such places are the throne room simulation four, where the seven brothers were symbolized by seven torches of fire. Similarly, the seven sisters are present and symbolized by the rainbow, which surrounds the heavenly Adam's throne. Revelation 4.3 says, quote, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, end quote. I also think they appear symbolically in Proverbs 9.1 through 3, along with the seven brothers, which says, quote, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens to call from the highest places in town, end quote. So I think that the pillars, uh, you know, pillars, a phallic symbol that refers to the male, the brothers, and then the, the maidens or the sisters, you know, as you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So I said, Azra is within this hierarchy as the seventh sister or, quote, lost star of the Pleiades. Um... That's all I wrote on that. We, I mean, we've talked about Azra on all these calls, like ad nauseum. So mm-hmm. she's also in the Bible, though, as the you know Asherah or um, Queen of Heaven in Jeremiah. Um, Lilith appears as a proper name in Isaiah 34. Uh, also, Di- Diana. Yep, Diana. Yep, yep. Uh, I think Astarte. Yeah. Yep. Starting, uh-huh. Or Astaroth. Yep. So you see, uh-huh. right in the Bible there, she's got a number of names. Yep. Now, in Revelation 17, it's pointing to, well, that, that'd be her earthly form, Isis, there, when it's because Isis means to sit. Sure. It says that, it's that twice in Revelation 17. And as a modern mind, they wouldn't pick up on that. But that, that's actually her name. Uh-huh. So go ahead and speak on the seven sisters then, their names. Uh, I can't do that top of my head. <laughs> oh, you don't. You don't have the. Yeah, and that you, colors. Oh, you don't have you don't have that. No, I was going to save it for later. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Um. Okay. When you see that uh, throne room scene there in Revelation four, I think. You notice how they have, people are going to have problems with the feminine. So you have um, the father figure on the throne. You have the lamb. And see, the lamb itself is symbolic. The clearest non-symbolic figure, which is faceless, is the father figure on the throne. And we all acknowledge that uh, the lamb is, you know, the Christ figure. And then um, because Chris is a little bit unfamiliar with the, uh, the seven Elohim, um, you know, just looking at that on the surface of things, and I go, what is that? Because they're represented as torches or lamps, right? Yep. 
Uh, but those are the seven spirits, and they're later described as seven angels in Revelation 8. We have the seven trumpets. You just look at the context. And, and these actually link up, by the way. So um, it actually tells you all these things. Okay, now, then we have two other major uh, metaphors there. If you had knowledge of the seven sisters, you wouldn't have um, a huge problem uh, if you understand that the, the a rainbow is uh, you know sevenfold, it actually has to do with number seven. That that would be um, them encircling the throne. And uh, if you can get to that point, which is very difficult for a bibliocentric Christian who is suspicious of things he's not heard before, but that's, it's it's really important to get to that point because if you can, there's one more thing that's left. And that's the sea. You see, because you're going, well, hold it. Everything is symbolic of something that is, you know, an entity. And I've run and checked some of this over the years, but that's actually the mother. That's the heavenly mother, celestial mother. When I say heavenly mother, remember we talking about a heavenly father? This is not Mormonism, okay? Um, that would be Eve. The heavenly Eve, you know what I mean? What was her symbol? Uh, well, she has to do with water and the moon, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. I thought the sea uh, in that vision had to do with the firmament. But yeah, I can understand that. Well, I think that it's related to it because the water is on right on top of that firmament. Right. It, it, you know what it's like? It's kind of like the um, the firmament is the like the ocean bottom of this. Heavenly yeah, sea. it is. Yeah. So when we think of the ocean... We typically just think uh, we include the bottom of the ocean. We typically don't distinguish between the two. See? You just say the ocean. You know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's important to understand that that should personify something, too. And if you understand hierarchy, you go, well, where's this um, heavenly Eve you were talking about? Well, that would be it. And, and that's, her ele- that's her element. So, anyway, we were talking about the mineral. Um, you will actually see... Uh, a ninefold menorah. You've seen this before. Mm-hmm. And even in uh, e- Egypt, they had a pantheon. It's very important, a pantheon of nine. Yep. But uh, in the pantheon of nine, you have the uh, um, the heavenly Adam and Eve, and then you have the seven brothers. Yep. Mm-hmm. The uh, 144,000, that has to do with um, uh, this... 70 royal sons and their consorts, and then you have a quaternity. Yep. Mm-hmm. And because they took away the female, uh, Christians don't think along the lines of a quaternity. They always think along the lines of a trinity in the number three, which is very interesting. <laughs> They're locked into that thinking, and they, um, they don't think about number four which is why they would have problems thinking that there's four archangels. I mean, remember, I said I can't prove the four archangels. And I don't see any particular text that uh, points that out. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I also want to right. tell you about the seven uh, stars. Um, that has to do with these seven stars that were prominent in the ancient world. Those were the seven primary stars, apart, celestial objects apart from the sun and moon. And, and see, it's all based on hierarchy. That's what you would expect. You see that? 
And so an ancient mind would recognize that right away. At least you would go, that must be what that is. The modern mind may, you know, this theory, that theory, see, they don't know. They've taken away the concept of hierarchy and how it relates to celestial objects. It's symbolized in the heavens, you see. And they shut down almost everything. It's really infantile. If you can't even... It's, it's overly Christ-centric. They ignore Lady Wisdom. They ignore the Seven Brothers. They ignore the Seven Sisters. They ignore the Seventy Consorts. They, they actually ignore the Seventy Sons. Actually, here's the thing. You ready, folks? You want to hear how dumbed down this is? They ignore everybody except for the Father and the Son, and they turn the Holy Spirit into a person. The Holy Spirit is um, at least three primary things. Who's going to deny that the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit? Well, that has to do with singularity and plurality, and you'll see that in the latter part of Hebrews where it talks about a cloud of witnesses, a single cloud, right? And Christians are confused, and they're going, are those the saints that have died? Are they looking down? Because they don't understand that the Elohim are all members of the Spirit, And that is the spirit of Christ, and Christ is the head. They only understand um, the elementary things that have to do with the body of Christ. The things in heaven, no. And ask yourself this question, is God communicating these things to them? No. So when you hear me talk about how God is blocking their mind, this is what I'm basing on. Evidence right on down the line. And really, it's, um, it's really kind of pathetic that they could have this much, well, here we go, lost knowledge. And uh, what are they suspicious of? Here we go, lost knowledge. You try to explain to a Christian, you have lost knowledge. They go, no, no, you have no lost knowledge. Everything's been revealed by the Father. And they'll go, you know someone that's claiming lost knowledge, and they'll be very, very suspicious. You see, that's their programming. So that's what I have to say about that. Oh, the, the 24 um, elders, um, I believe that those are among the 70, and they're actually a priesthood. And the number 24 had to do with an earthly priesthood in David's day, I believe. Just like, you know, there's an, the Sanhedrin were an earthly reflection of the divine council, that's what we call it. Another thing, too, in Psalm 82, we talk about things that Christians never talk about. We talk about the concept of gray angels. Um, that passage, that psalm, along with um, what it speaks about in uh, Romans 8, cosmological devolution, it says the entire creation is subject to this. The entire creation is... Well, that's going to affect the creatures in heaven. Christians have never even heard of this before. But the concept of a gray angel, remember that everything is a vessel of light. And we pointed out earlier, when it comes to the stars, which is a symbol of of them, they all have different degrees of light. And the darkness is really a murky light. So they're really vessels of light with different degrees of light. And uh, so it all has to do with that kind of thing. And uh, you can see how light is very important. And you can also see how 
Um, you know, Gnostics will talk about like a lot. Uh, Roman Catholics will talk about it, like in mysticism and things like that. They talk about light a lot in the Eastern Church. What's the, the major group that talks about light the least? It's Protestants. And I believe this is deliberate. Um, and then we we're, we're always hear about equality. You can see how they shut everything down? And so what's happened is we've lost knowledge about hierarchy. You can see that, you know. And uh, what the Protestant mind will do is he'll resort to proof texting and say, you, you can't prove these things. And I'll be the first to, yeah, you can't. That's why we have to have a restoration of knowledge. And that's why I'm appealing to Revelation. But actually, the things that we're talking about, you can't, it's very difficult to disprove. So you're not going to be able to really prove anything with your proof text. You're just going to say, well, this is a strange doctrine, and you're claiming some kind of superior knowledge. Okay, well, go prove it wrong with your proof text. But they really don't have anything. You know I mean? And I could be emphasizing it right down the line. How do you, how do you disprove this? How do you disprove that? You know, proof texting. Because it actually doesn't even talk about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not really in the Bible. As far as... um. It's something being really explicit, you know. It, now, also, it, you know, it doesn't talk about, you know, these concepts, you know, like there is no such thing as, um, you know, female angels. Does it ever say that in the Bible? Or this thing as you know, consorts of the angels. It doesn't come up that. It, it doesn't talk about these things in a condemnatory manner. It simply doesn't talk about them. But you don't have proof texts. So, I don't know. All right. Moving on to the seven dark brothers and their consorts. Uh, I said the seven dark Elohim and their consorts are not explicitly elucidated in Scripture, but I think can be inferred from the Sirach passage where it says God created everything in pairs, opposites, and a wealth of tradition, extra-biblical tradition. Uh, the seven dark Elohim traditionally have dominion over an agency of the seven deadly sins, which are presumably shared by their consorts. Um, I think some are mentioned by name in scripture, including Baal Zebub, uh, Lord of the Flies, mm-hmm. mentioned in both Luke 11:15 and Matthew 12:24, and described as the quote Prince of the Demons end quote. And thus, I think, is the dark counterpart of Michael, who is Prince of the Spirits of Light, as per Daniel 12:1 and Revelation 12:7 and thus is first in rank amongst the Dark Seven under Nimbus, their head. Um, Another possible contender might be uh, Milcom, spoken of as the Elohim of the Ammonites, uh, possibly uh, Shamash, um, maybe Molech. Those are a few. I mean, that's all speculative. I, I don't know for sure, but... Um, that's all I had on them. Uh, well, I got some revelation on that, right, Chuck? You there? Are you there, Chuck? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Remember when we asked about these things? And, uh, mm-hmm. I, Chris, I've always had a strong tendency to... I figured that Belial... Or Belier is is 
probably just an alternative name for um, Nimbus, right? Yeah. yeah. But I um, I had a strong tendency to believe that Beelzebub was uh, the prince that was first in rank below him. But we asked about that, and he said that's a name for, for Nimbus. So I just go with the revelation. And, uh, I mean, I can't disprove that, see, so that's why I go with it. Sure. And he said that the only one that's named among them is Azazel, and he's fifth in rank. He's so Molech and, Molech and Shamash and all them, those are just what, Gray Elohim or what? Now, that's an interesting name there. The first one you said with an M. Uh, there's a, see, I, I assume that either all or at least some of their names, like more than one, would be mentioned because um, – there's this pretty big uh, book called Dictionaries and Deities of the Bible. Demons. And it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, demons. It's amazing how many names they have in there. And that's why I assume that some of the, these names would be these entities. In fact, it doesn't really make sense to me that none of them would be or not more than that. But anyway, yeah. um, there's a passage in the book of um, Acts where one of the seven brothers is, is mentioned. But it's not something that would be obvious. We had to get revelation on it. It says in Acts 7.43, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon. Raphon? Raphon, yeah. The image that you made to worship, and I will send you in the exile into Babylon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is actually a huge subject. Um, the Illuminati covered up the fact. I'll just go over this briefly. So this Wouldn't that be two of them then, or what? Moloch well, and the other one? It, it's, it's an alternative name for one of the seven brothers. Now, it, the reason it doesn't make sense is because they have covered up that they used to worship these angels. Now, t- this, is, this is the way you make sense of it. Uh, the, the Bible clearly speaks that um, the Israelites were an idolatrous nation. Yeah. Okay? And, uh, and because of that, if you think about it, they would have fallen into angel worship. And you know, when Christians think about angel worship, they don't really have much beyond this passage in Colossians. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And that doesn't have to do with the Hebrews. That doesn't have to do with the Hebrews. It has to do with the first century. So where is the evidence that they fell into this kind of thing? Well, I believe that there was a conspiracy to cover it up. This will sound strange at first, because they don't want you to understand that the Hebrews had a very lofty view of what we call angels, which are not angels at all. They're Elohim. They're gods and goddesses. That they worship them. And that they chose these different gods, and um, they would start ignoring the Most High God and start worshiping these lesser Elohim. And that's what is being condemned here. And that's the same thing that you have there. I think it's in Jeremiah 7 with the Queen of Heaven. Okay. Now, I'm not making the case that she was the queen at that time, that they had knowledge that she would become the queen. They had right. all the extracurricular knowledge is completely gone. And uh, we've been told that Semiramis knew these things. She knew her destiny. She had access to unbelievable amount of information because um, she has the prominent role, preeminent role in this whole cosmic drama where, the, like I said, the, the daughter of God um, – as a secondary role, and even though normally she would be greater, qualitatively, and uh, Semiramis had access to secret occult information as well, kind of like Moses. 
I mean, the Bible actually says this about Moses. You know, Christians have a problem with occult knowledge where that shows you that there was an ejection of occult knowledge out of the Egyptian mystery schools into Israel. And, you know, all these guys, they want to take that and run with it. No, this is going to be a balanced position. I'm just said they, let's say alchemy or something like that. They had, that would explain why. This is very true to alchemy, and I don't want to call it alchemy at all, but that will explain why Moses was um, creating colloidal gold yeah. at the base of the mountain. And yeah. he learned certain things. And there's no question. I mean, it, you know. And where did all that knowledge go? Well, it's gone. Enoch had knowledge of the stars and other things. Adam had knowledge. And um, so you have an Enochian, Adamic, and Mosaic um, traditions that... They're truncated. And Christians run around trying to find everything in the Bible. Do you think this information might be important? It's not in your Bible. It's gone. Okay. So anyway, they covered up that they adored these beings and worshipped them. And this is why you, I mean, they had that tendency because they had a very lofty. You can see right now that Christians have a very lowly um, view of angels. And also angels are kind of out of sight, out of mind. You can see that with Michael, Okay. They were very focused uh, on angels, and the ancient mind, as a general rule, was very concerned about the gods, you know, and, uh, and their view of human action. And they were trying to, you know, well, oh, I don't want to offend the gods, because I'm going to get in trouble. You know, you're not going to have a good crop. I mean, if you don't have a good crop, you could die, you could perish, you could be embarrassed, you know, in the community, something like that. Look at this guy. He must be uh, under a curse, you know what I mean? <clears throat> And uh, we don't think this way. We just forgot all that because of secular humanism. And so, um, you know, I can't prove this, but um, we were told that that is, um, well, I think, trying to remember his name. I forget his name. Uh, can you go over that list that you had? Maybe it will be uh, more obvious who it is. Uh, of the seven brothers, do you still have that available there? I mean, you can see it. On the oh, list. yeah, hold on. They have variation of their names, but they have secondary names. Michael, uh, Gabriel, Uriel, um, Serachiel, Raguel, Remiel, and uh, oh, let's see. Okay, it, 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 it's it, it's it, I think it's Raguel. I think so. Raguel. Yeah. He's one you don't hear about much. He's kind so, of quiet. So, so what was his alternate name then? Remphon or what? Rem, yeah. Okay. So who's Moloch then? I think uh, Moloch is um, is Nimbus. I think I yeah I asked about that. Remember Chuck? Yeah, I can't remember. So all these different names are just different names of Nimbus. That's yeah, well, yeah. I don't know. going to see that kind of thing. I mean, look at uh, look at um, look at Azra, You know, goddess of a thousand names. Yeah, she's got lots and lots of names. Well, he's the head, so you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All these names glorify him, I guess. Hmm. All right. So, the last entity I mentioned is Azazel. So that, uh, I think Azazel is one of the Dark Seven, and I wanted to talk about him. In order to make the distinction between him and Nimbus, Azazel is the same entity as Hades in Greek mythology or Pluto in the Roman and is the Elohim presiding over the underworld 
as opposed to Nimbus, whose former domain and residence was heaven. Uh, Azazel is mentioned a couple times in scripture, but is not the primary antagonist therein, that role being fulfilled by Nimbus. The first instance is Leviticus 16.5-10, which describes Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement Ritual, quote, And from the congregation of the children of Israel, he takes two male goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And Aaron shall bring the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his house. And he shall take the two goats and let them stand before Yahweh at the door of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel, which in the Hebrew is the proper name erroneously translated as scapegoat in many versions. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the lot for Yahweh fell and shall prepare it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for Azazel fell is caused to stand alive before Yahweh to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness of Azazel, end quote. The sins of the Israelites were symbolically placed upon the goat to which it was sent outside, or exiled and banished outside the camp into the wilderness to Azazel, hence the term scapegoat. Uh, if we look to extra-biblical sources like one Enoch, it gives us even more details on Azazel and clarifies his distinction from Nimbus further. Quote, and again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot and cast him into the darkness and make an opening in the desert which is in Dudale, and cast him therein, and place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there forever, and cover his face that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire, and heal the earth which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth, that they may heal the plague, and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin, end quote. First Enoch 10, 4 through 9. We see here that Azazel was complicit in the rebellion of Genesis 6, and before that had access to heaven, but as part of his punishment was forced to remain in his realm in the underworld thereafter. Uh, this solves the problems we had before of resolving his identity with that of the heavenly Satan, who wasn't cast out of heaven until the first century, being Nimbus. You see they're clearly distinct there. Another place where Azazel or Hades appears in scripture is Revelation 6.8, quote, Then I looked and saw a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed close behind and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, by famine, by plague, and by the beasts of the earth, end quote. To where Hades, his Greek name, or Azazel, is accompanied by his temporal consort Azra, or Lilith, Persephone, Pandora, here called Death, uh, because she brought Death. Dave's talked about that before. That's it. Oh, right, you, so you want to comment on that? Uh, I'm actually uh, texting Channing here. Um, Were you talking about Revelation 6 and Revelation 20? No, just Revelation 6, Revelation 6, 8. They're also mentioned again in uh, Revelation 20. Yeah, but that's Azazel, because in the Persephone myth, which was the most important 
we got some ancient mystery schools, as far as we know. Yeah. Um, the fig, the male figure was Hades. Yep. You see? And also scholars will acknowledge in Revelation 12 that they're using a well-known concept of Diana. You know, where you see, uh, you know, the moon at her feet, and she's got the stars in her, she's got the crown. He's, the theory is, it's just a theory. They're utilizing that to communicate something, and also because Diana was chaste and virginal. Yeah. Okay. So there's one final thing I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention before. Was... She, she, she brought death. Um, that's why yeah. she's also Pandora. Yep. And so... It, same with, um, now we just asked this today, we just ran a check on this. Is it true that uh, Nimbus is Apollyon? Uh-huh. And, I mean, I figured it was, but yeah, and so he's Apollo. Yep. So now you can take, see, they're acknowledging Apollo. Whoa. Uh-huh. See, 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 Christians, do they believe that any of this mythology is real? No. Does it have value? No. You see that? If you look into it, you'll see what I call the central myth. And around that, you have the window dressing. And, and I believe myself that they, these dark priesthoods, they created the propaganda around the, the central myth because um, oh yeah, the people understood the central myth. And so they didn't play around with that, but they created propaganda around it. And now Christians assume that there's nothing worthy there at all. And that's not true. And that's why they created the word myth, because in the Christian mind, that means something that is not true. There's no truth. And ask yourself this question, do they look for truth? No. no. Now, Internet Christians are a little bit different, but you know, historically, Christians have not been doing this kind of thing. So she's the one that brought death initially. And this would be in, in the uh, classical Golden Age, which we would call pre-Adamic era. But uh, that's her right there, and there she's called Death, you see. But he um, is called Hades, and that's, uh, that's Azazel. And the reason that she is called Azura, that's kind of like a secret name, is because he named her uh, After something himself. similar to himself because she became his queen. She was the queen of the underworld. Yep. So she becomes uh, the queen of heaven, and she's also queen of the earth. And it's actually uh, in Jewish, Jewish tradition... Uh that was also a name of uh, the wife of Cain, Hazara. Mm-hmm. So, again, just to reiterate, uh, no. in Jeremiah 7, um, they were worshiping her. Uh, that's why it was condemned. Yep. You're not supposed to worship anyone uh, below the sun, the, the sun. Right. And... Uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. I'll make that clear because there's confusion out there. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So uh, I, do, I, I don't believe she was the queen of heaven at that time. I think it was future. Right. Yeah. So there's just a couple things I forgot to mention before on the, the heavenly Adam. A couple passages mm-hmm. uh, from Revelation. So here I got, it says, quote, this is from Revelation 4. After this, I looked and saw a door having been opened in the heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I shall show you what has to take place after this. 
And immediately I came to be in the spirit and saw a throne set in the heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a ruby stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, dressed in white, white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And out of the throne came lightnings and thunders and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of Elohim. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were covered with eyes around and within, and they do not cease day or night, saying, Set apart, set apart, set apart, Yahweh Almighty, who was and who is and who is coming. And when the living creatures gave us give esteem and respect and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and bow before him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their thrones before the or crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Yahweh, to receive esteem and respect and power, for you have created all, and because of your desire they are and were created. End quote. If we examine Revelation 4 here, we will see that John was taken up to heaven and saw one throne with one sitting on it. This becomes significant when we examine other passages following. And this is where it becomes pivotal. Quote, After this I looked and saw a great crowd with which no one was able to count out of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in white robes and palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, saying, Deliverance belongs to our Elohim, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the messengers stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped Elohim, saying, Amen. The blessing, and the esteem, and the wisdom, and the thanksgiving, and the respect, and the power, and the might, to our Elohim forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders responded, saying to me, Who are these dressed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Master, you know. And he said to me, These are those coming out of the great distress, tribulation, having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Because of this, they are before the throne of Elohim and serve him day and night in his dwelling place. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tent over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun strike them, nor any heat. Because the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne shall shepherd them and lead them to fountains of waters of life, and Elohim shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, end quote. That was Revelation 7, 9 through 17. Here we see that John indeed saw one throne in heaven and one sitting on it, yet his character is somehow merged with that of the Lamb. We see this definitively in verse 17, where it says that the Lamb, or Christ, was in the midst of the throne. Do we think that Christ and the Ancient of Days share the same same throne, like he's sitting on his lap or something? No, they merged and became the same being, as they were previously. Okay, that's it. Yeah, Isaac Newton, uh, when you were talking about the midst of the throne, I agree with that. I was thinking that back to uh, Revelation 4 for some reason. 
yeah. like the rainbows around the throne. Yeah, I, I was already aware of that. I just was really confused there. But uh, Isaac Newton, who well, I totally believe he's on the payroll, and you got all these internet Christians that are trying to, you know, think he's, uh, <laughs> you know, working against Illuminati or something. No, 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 because he was appointed to high places, and um, it couldn't have happened unless he was insider. But um, he used that um, heavenly scene there uh, to try to. You know, prove this Aryan Christology. You know the lamb is the lamb is clearly inferior. You know, yeah. To the figure on the throne, and, and that's true. That's true. Sure. But see, also, I say that he was God before and after the first century incarnation. Christians have never even heard of this before, and, and the Aryans have actually nobody's heard of it before. It's you know something. The things that you never hear, uh huh. You gotta be suspicious. You know, is it significant? There's a very good chance that's the truth. The reason people don't think that way is because they don't know they live in a system of control. You can see how they're steering us away from these discussions that never take place. You can see these patterns if you talk long enough, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's definitely what's going on there. Um, but anyway, in Philippians 2, um, the indicator that he was God is it says that he no longer considered himself Equality with God, something to be grasped. Yep. It's just right there. Yep. Well, how can you say that he's not equal with God before the incarnation? You have to de- deny scripture. See, we're not mm-hmm. talking about the first century incarnation. We're talking about before that. Yep. And then the Trinitarians try to maintain that he's still equal on earth. No. The Arians are wrong, too, and so are the modalists. They're all wrong. That passage refutes everybody, but it... Um, it vindicates my view. Mm-hmm. That view is that God... Now, he came out. He came out of the heavenly Adam. Yep. And that's why he was equal with him. He was a part of him, a lesser element. Yeah. Uh, we, we call it the soul aspect. It's being kind of technical, but... Um, yep. Um, he was no longer equal. And uh, nobody's acknowledging this. Right. It, there you go. It vindicates my belief system right there, which nobody... You don't even hear about it. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Uh-huh. Yep. Lost knowledge. You can see that because of discussions. You know these discussions are not taking place. Get all your Bible commentaries. All of them. They're not in these Bible commentaries. No. If you haven't looked at them, you might think that they're there somewhere, but they are not. <laughs> mm-hmm. In fact, I've had people tell me that Somebody just told me the other day that uh, Matthew 17, 11. He had a Bible commentary. It just glossed over the passage. Didn't even comment on it. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's the reason is, is because they assumed that um, Matthew 17, uh, 12 explains it satisfactorily. It says, then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. Yeah. But they were in error. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, like I said before, Jesus is talking about himself. I've only said that once before on this show, because he claimed to be Elijah and Enoch. You can't, see, you can't, when he said that no man has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man descended from heaven, okay? He's claiming to have ascended into heaven in previous incarnation, okay? Yeah, Chris, that's another one. They absolutely, they have no comment. They haven't even thought about it. Because they can't prove that he ascended to heaven in the first century before his historical ascension after his resurrection. They can't, they can't prove. They never thought about this before. 
Okay, so what they have to do, they have to, with their proof texting method, they have to absolutely prove that neither Enoch or Elijah ascended into heaven. But they can't do that. So that means they can't prove that he wasn't Elijah. And you remember in the book of Enoch, it says that Enoch was the son of man. We know who the son of man is. Jesus claimed to be the son of man. Now, don't fool yourself. You know, they had a lot of Enochian traditions. And you're familiar with this. I mean, people think, uh, well, you know, the Bible refers to um, you know, the book of Enoch and, and Jude. But actually, we're not actually quite certain, but there are a number of references. We're not sure... You know, like they were, they're making references to the book of Enoch. Um, it, 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 there's no way to prove that they're not. And Jesus is too, apparently, as far as we know. I, I, I believe that, you know, partial references or ideas and concepts that people all, they actually had an Enochian understanding back then. And they took all that away because it's really on a higher, knowledge. see, the esoteric, the higher things, they're in the book of Enoch. Yeah. And then you have this interesting book called Second Ezra, or Second Ezra, and uh, it talks about these secret books, and it tells him to put these things away. We can't prove those books didn't exist. If they were hidden away, you, you wouldn't have them. They'd be gone. See? Yep. So can you prove there was? You can't prove there wasn't secret books with higher knowledge. How are you going to do that? They just assume that we have everything, and we have sufficient knowledge. But you can see that we do not have sufficient knowledge. Can everyone see that? And you can also see there's lost knowledge. Now, I want everyone to understand that Christians are not looking for lost knowledge. And actually, if there are any Christians that are doing that, they're doing it the wrong way. You know, people on YouTube, they got a false epistemology. See, they think that they can discover these things without revelation. Do you understand that, Chris? The only way they're going to be recovered, see, they're lost. Right. And you can't recover them with the Internet. They're trying to recover the information with the Internet. No, it's not on right. the Internet. It's not in any books. Once you understand that, then you'll need to understand that, well, what does it say? Elijah will come and restore everything. There you go. That's what we need. So yep. this is why in Judaism they have a more humble estimation of their level of knowledge. Even the interpretation of the Torah, they admit we don't have complete understanding. They're looking for an authoritative prophet, and they have different views. Um, some even believe that Elijah is the Messiah. But they're waiting for these uh, figures to come. Now, these are men, you know, where the Christians are waiting for God to part the heavens and come down. And they're not looking for anything significant to occur before that. But obviously when that happens, Jesus will, their, their God will explain everything. So they're satisfied with, with that, you know. Yep. They have no expectations, you see. And uh, they should, because if they understood the scriptures properly. Because there's supposed to be a fresh influx of knowledge. And this has to do with the, the new thing that's spoken about twice in the... Um, what do I say? And there, and there will be authorities that will be uh, given to us. Judges will be restored in the days of old. And I talked about these teachers uh, that will be like David. They'll have, have a heart after God. Talks about that in Jeremiah, like Jeremiah 3, something like that. I read it the other day. Mm -hmm. I, I read it on the day of the eclipse. So, mm -hmm. anyway. You guys got any questions or anything? 
it'd be helpful if people could come up with like one question. I mean, everybody should have one question, and we can do another show. I'll deal with some even more esoteric stuff, and just you know, give, give me some questions. Everyone should have questions. Really, yeah, that's all I have. Though. I'm gonna have to get going here soon. Yeah, yeah. We might that's just fine. cut it off here and then, yeah, do another one. Okay. All right. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for uh, joining me, Dave. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris. Yep, appreciate it. Yeah. I will uh, talk to you guys later. Okay. All right, bye.